Hey, Brian, what's the haps? Well, Chris, as you know, Valentine's Day is coming up. Yeah, so? So, I'm making Digital Noise brand candy hearts. They're going to sell like hotcakes. Chalky, tasteless little hotcakes. Oh, I gotcha. Let's see what phrases you got here. This one says, you're my favorite beard. Yeah, you know, because Luke. Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, this one just says, I need you like Kino needs subtitles. Yeah, that one was tricky to get all on one heart. Let's see. Ghost hits? You're pun-believable? I'd never give you away? Brian, these will never sell. Ah, but this one will. What's it say? Beer! I'll take five boxes. Hi, Def Regards, Digifiles, and welcome to another pixel-pounding episode of Digital Noise right here on OneOfUs.net. This is the weekly Blu-ray DVD review podcast that comes replete with all the special features. That is, features that call into serious question the merits of the word special. (laughs) Not the special that our mothers told us we were. I don't really understand what just happened there, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I'm your host, Brian Salisbury. You don't even want to know what I do behind the scenes. And I am joined by my co-host and a man who always asks his barber for the director's cut, Christopher Lawrence Cox. Wow, I like that. I actually want to go into a barber when they ask me, so what kind of cut do you like? The director's cut and just wait for a beat to see what happens. See, but knowing you, you'd ask for the David Lynch and then that would just be terrifying. You don't want that. (laughs) Or the Tim Burton. Oh my God, no. No, 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 no. No, no, no. no. Especially when you start recycling your own haircuts and it just looks like all your other haircuts. (laughs) How are you, sir? I am fine. Good. This I am is, fine. I'm glad we have this session to banter back and Hair forth. Hair is fine, and I am fine. <laughs> <laughs> wow, once we got past episode 30, this show really started circling the drain. <laughs> this takes a nosedive wow. of interest. We're like, well, we're here. <laughs> we got different showrunners now. Let me get my time card. Chunk, chunk. <laughs> <laughs> we go to work. Is it lunchtime yet? <laughs> Well, with that uh, stellar segue, I want to remind you that this fantastic show, just like all of our other content on One of Us, is available on iTunes, so you can hear it all the time. And all you have to do is search One of Us in the podcast section. You can also follow this show individually on Twitter, at DigiNoiseCast, that's D-I-G-I NoiseCast. And you can follow the site on Facebook, facebook.com slash oneofusnet. Oh, hey, by the way, you can also become a subscriber to the site, which would be an awesome thing that would make you king of the universe. I'm probably not overselling it. I don't know. Of course not. How does one quantify king of the universe anyway? Uh, well, let's see. There's King of the Impossible. That's Flash Gordon. There's Master of the Universe. I believe he's He-Man, although there is some contention from Skeletor. Uh, there's Mr. Universe, who I always just assume is Arnold Schwarzenegger every year. Uh, you know what? That's the, I want to talk about that. How do you determine that he is Mr. Universe? Like, are there not bodybuilders on other planets and other systems? Well, that's the thing is, like, we're pretty ghetto. When yeah. it comes to the universe, they're like, nobody's coming to our Mr. Universe contest. <laughs> you know, True. they're like, uh, no, thank you. 
I mean, honestly, there are much better built athletes in other systems. Unfortunately, a lot of them do test positive for performance enhancing nanobots. That's true. Mr. Alpha Centauri had a huge controversy about when it turned out that he was eating some of the other contestants in order to gain their strength. (laughs) Performance enhancing devouring. Yes, I've heard of that. But yeah, um... Yeah, become a subscriber. Yeah, subscriber. <laughs> we, we could use your help. We really could. We have all this stuff that we want to do that we're so excited about. Like, we, we even have stuff practically, like, written out to do. We just need some new equipment, quite yeah. frankly. And we need to pay some of these people who've been giving you such, so much great content over time. We really, you know, we're really excited about what we have here. We've got a great team of people, and it's your help. It's those little contributions that you make that make all the difference we wouldn't mind getting paid at some point either but yeah uh, well first things first that could come at some point <laughs> that, that would be nice someday somewhere somehow anyway uh <laughs> so much for that acting minor <laughs> yeah well i wanted to be a minor actor so yeah, here we are there you go uh, well, now it's time to reach out to the inner sphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call the letter box. You've got mail. The letter box. Thank you, Torgo, for giving me a break. That was hard to do in one breath. <sighs> Stupid Torgo. Right. Ooh. Okay. So Joe Kimphouse asks, what is your favorite piece of casting from a bad movie? Now, I can only assume he means it's a bad movie, but there's an actor who stands out. Yes. There's the some there's some nugget of performance brilliance in that turd. Right. And, you know, the thing is, like, I, I suppose you can say that for there's probably a lot of dramas out there that that's true of. Like, it's got it's a terrible movie, but you got to admit this one guy was great in it. But those are the sort of things that stick with you. Right. Mm-hmm. What sticks with you is the really campy, awful movies that have one thing, one performance that might be awful, too. But it's so over the top hysterical, you'll never forget it. And for me, there there are two big ones. One is Morgan Freeman and Wanted. I oh, mean, yeah. Come on. That shoot movie this is, motherfucker. Oh, yeah. Shoot that motherfucker. Fuck off. That movie is terrible, but he is so not playing a role Morgan Freeman ever plays in that movie that you, you it's just hard not to watch it and have a good time with him. I almost said Dreamcatcher, except that movie's too bad to sit through even for Morgan Freeman's performance. Uh, the other one, of course, and I know some people genuinely like this movie. I wish I could join you. I can't. I think it's I think Deep Blue Sea is an awful movie that's saved by Samuel L. Jackson, who yeah. is so funny in it and has the arguably the single greatest death in a horror movie ever in the middle of yeah definitely mid monologue so funny that even the the television show animated version of uh kevin smith's clerks had an episode that basically tributed it in every scene of the episode definitely yeah no i that show was real short-lived that animated clerks very funny it's better than any of the clerks sequels and what's what's funny about the clerks animated series to me is it's doing a lot it did a lot of the same things that community is doing now like they had a great episode where they made fun of bottle episodes that I I just it seems like it, it leapt out of the mind of Abed Nadir. No, right, you're absolutely right. That show is actually really funny and a lot of most people didn't even never saw it or even gave it the time of day. I, I think it's a billion times funnier than Clerks Two or probably whatever Clerks Three is going to be. Uh oh. Uh <laughs> I will say this about Deep Blue Sea. It's much better if you if you view the movie from the shark's perspective and it's this great prison break film. It's like the Shark Tank Redemption. At that point it becomes an entirely different movie. Es- escape from Sharkatraz. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh for me, 
See, that's the thing is, is for me, a lot of the movies that I could throw out there that have these incredible performances in them, I actually don't think are bad movies, but kind of get that reputation. For example, Truck Turner is, is one of my favorite black exploitation movies. And there are a lot of people that watch it today and go, yeah, it's a bad movie, but you can't, can't fault the incredible over the top performance of Yafet Kodo as the bad guy whose death scene takes about 10 minutes like he gets shot and just like he will not die. like he wa- he walks out of the building walks down the street gets into a car and then dies when he's sitting in the car so like no i'm not gonna die here i'll uh i'll do this on my own terms it is the most like if i'm gonna be in this movie and i'm gonna have a death scene i'm gonna have a death scene yeah, yeah i love it when actors say fuck it it's like watching shakespeare at the grand guignol on acid it's it's the weirdest thing but i absolutely love it and in terms of, again, over-the-top performances and otherwise bad movies, Friday the 13th Part 4 is famous for Crispin Glover's dance scene. Uh-huh. And, and really, Crispin Glover in that entire movie is such a joy to watch that there's very little else about that particular sequel that I remember, other than it was directed by the guy who did The Prowler and was supposed to kill off Jason forever. Uh, but there's very little else I remember other than the that bizarre dance scene where Crispin Glover's just kind of, like, convulsing, like like a maniac and it was only outdone finally as the most awkward dance scene in cinema by Leonardo DiCaprio in the Wolf of Wall Street. So congratulations to Leo. You know, as long as we're on the subject of that type of movie where they're bad movies that we like anyway in cue the winged serpent (laughs) mentioned before like this, we reviewed this movie. Michael Moriarty. Michael Moriarty in that movie. Holy shit. He's actually a really good actor. Yes, he is. And this is one of these like, look, I'm, Oh, you want acting? Oh, I'll act, motherfucker. You want, it's like the Simpsons Halloween episode. You want some acting? We'll have all the acting in the world. (laughs) (laughs) At once into your eyeballs. So out of place in that movie. And it's just totally wonderful. Absolutely. (laughs) And it's funny now that it's reminded me of Michael Moriarty in Troll, where he also has an awkward dance scene. So (laughs) all this is just coming full circle. Thank you, Michael Moriarty, for being the centerpiece of our weird movie universe. Uh, Yafet Koto, I think it was Bone, the Larry Cohen film as Mm -hmm. well. I remember seeing that and his performance was actually that one where everybody else is just kind of and he's just tearing it up (laughs) yeah he does not have a half-ass mode he doesn't know what that means he does everything a whole hog and i love that not his strength indeed indeed (laughs) (laughs) uh what the hell are we talking about oh yeah our second question comes from uh michael scully who actually just won our uh Never sleep again giveaways. So oh, no kidding. Wow. Yeah. That, that was a good one. I agree. I wish we could have kept that. Yeah, me too. Anyway. And by this, we, I mean me. Well, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> hey, speaking of you, this question is probably better answered by you. What are your feelings on DC pushing their animated DVD output toward a more new 52-centric output? The out, out, word output is used twice. I've never heard of DC. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one half of the battery, I think. <laughs> no. Uh, okay, so I've been actually asked this a lot, and I've avoided answering it. Well, now you have um, to. And I, I kind of dropped out of DC completely after the first year of New 52, which for those of you who don't know out there, it was yet again – I mean, this happens in comics once every 10 years at least when they say, we have to reboot everything. And sometimes it works, kind of, and sometimes it really doesn't. And New 52 had actually had some degree of hope. Some stuff they were more or less sticking to the old comic lines because it was good enough. They're like, well, we'll and, and it was still building towards something. Like, well, like Green Lantern was a the thing. They largely kept to what had been going on. Uh, and other stuff, they were like, well, we're just going to start from ground zero, like, uh, the Justice League and, and Superman and Batman. Uh, they really re- seriously rebooted these books. 
And it pissed a lot of people off, as you'd expect, but it's one of those time will... I figured it's one of those time will tell things. Okay, a lot of people are going to be mad no matter what. Let's see how it goes. There are some good writers on this. There are also some terrible ones. But the main thing we learned going into this was that DC's editorial staff didn't have a fucking clue what they wanted in the New 52 to be when one writer after another started leaving DC kind of upset about various things and saying things like... Like, oh, oh, God, who was it? Somebody who was uh, George Perez is one of the legendary Superman writers left it after like four months, I think, that the, the Superman action comics book, because he said, I would say, so what's going on to the editors? What's going on? Are the Kents alive? Uh, Jesus is, Christ. You know, is there a Justice League? What what does he have? Is he still allergic to kryptonite? Is there something else? What's going on? And he would just not get a response. Like they wouldn't even return his emails, basically. So finally, he's just like, you know what? This is too stressful. I cannot I can't write Superman in this universe where I don't know what the universe is at all. And no one will even suggest to me. And it was a lot of other people backed him up. Uh, other people who came and went from D.C. were like, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and <laughs> over time, it became clear that's exactly what the case was. Few good things came out of it. Scott Snyder's run on 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 uh, uh, Batman and uh, the runs of Swamp Thing, Animal Man, uh, a couple other books that were good. A couple of the good books that got canceled, of course, because that's DC for you. The upshot of all this is DC has been famous for a while for having the best of the animated universes. Certainly better than Marvel's, which was skittishly hit or miss at best. DC's animated universe has consi- pretty consistently put out damn good stuff. So when they more or less kind of half-acidly announced, well, from starting with Justice League uh, Flashpoint, which we both really enjoyed. Yeah, that was really good. uh, Everything is going to take place in the new 52 universe. Certainly met with more than a little bit of controversy. I take it with a grain of salt. Whatever. There's still superhero movies. Until I actually saw Justice League War. We'll talk about that more when we get into the actual reviews. Uh But... If that's any indication of what's been going on with what they want to build on with the Justice League and Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman, I think they've made a terrible mistake. I think if nothing else, we have to applaud DC for keeping all those cobblers in business because every time you reboot, I mean, you hire another cobbler and those guys, their fingers get tired. That's not a thing. What, is that not a reboot? They just make new boots for Batman and Superman, right? I'm going to boot you right out of here is what's going to happen. Well, I guess I misunderstood what that was all about. Hey, we've got a really good shoe. (laughs) (laughs) Why are we Canadian all of a sudden? And Ed Sullivan. It's it's very bizarre. I don't know. I doubt. I think what's going to happen is uh, I've heard so many people who hated Justice League. I mean, hated Justice League War of fans and critics alike. And I suspect that the number, I mean, it's hard to tell because so many of the sales are like, you know, 12 year old boys who see it at Walmart. Like, mom, buy this. Wait, DC sells 12 year old boys? Yeah, you didn't know. No, that's really bizarre. That's how they, there's also this really great sex trade. If you're ever in Slovenia, I'll totally hook you up. Is that what Young Justice is? Yeah. Ah! <laughs> uh, no, it's not. I know nothing. I didn't say anything that just happened. These were not the sex criminals you're looking for. It's the actual book, Sex Criminals, sex criminals. by Max, Matt Fraction. There you go. That you want to read. Uh, actually, we'll be interviewing, hopefully, the writer of that book, or one of the writers, or I'm sorry, the artist of that book, Chip, Chip Zdarsky, uh, at Staple, which I'm very excited about. Woohoo! Staple. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I seriously doubt that DC's going to stick with the, all the books are New 52. There's so many stories in their past that are like, why aren't you telling these great stories that already exist instead of scraping just the stuff that's come out in the last two and a half years or so? So, right. I don't think they'll stick with it. So, short answer, no. <laughs> short answer, <laughs> 
Well, thank you for your questions, listeners. We're slamming close the lid on the letterbox for this week. Slumber in peace, oh revered receptacle. And now it's time That's to... That's what I say every time after sex. Uh. <laughs> it does not go well. <laughs> well, now it's time to finish burying the lead and dig into the reviews. And just like always, everything we talk about, there'll be a little image of it at the bottom of the post here on oneofus.net. If you click on that image, it'll take you to Amazon. Even if you don't buy that item, just by getting to Amazon from our link, we get a cut of whatever you purchase. So please consider doing that. It really helps us out. Yeah, you'd be surprised. We were surprised how much it helps. It yeah. actually helps a good deal. So doing that, making that your regular practice. Oh, I need to buy something on Amazon. Oh, wait, go to oneofus.net first. Also doesn't hurt that that's an excuse to give us more clicks, but you know, there you go. There you go. Uh, yeah, do that. And if you buy something that we recommended on Amazon, please leave a cust, a review on Amazon. Heading people right back to us saying, hey, I discovered this by listening to Digital Noise on oneofus.net. You should check it out. They do all the greatest home video reviews. That is not going to hurt either. Not at all. Well, this week we're going to start with Escape Plan. That's my plan is to start with this film. I don't know. I, I, need, I'm already gone. <laughs> I need to, I need to <laughs> escape this review already. Uh, yeah, this is the movie everybody said they wanted. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Sylvester Stallone, the two greatest heroes, and Jesus. Actually, no, not Jesus. G- Jim Caviezel. So they got they got Stallone, they got Schwarzenegger, and they got Jesus. Come oh, on. Okay. <laughs> this is this is like the ultimate uh, right wing movie. <laughs> and, and yeah, even 50, even Fifty Cent, who apparently is incapable of not being in any almost directed DVD action film featuring washed up stars from the eighties. Yeah, that's that's something he is no longer able to do. <laughs> Uh, you know, like, like I said, everybody's like, oh, this has got to be great. It's the two of them together. The problem is, is that like so many things like this, they didn't really spend that much time making sure that it was. They just made a pretty generic and less than, not even as cool as the 80s action films that these guys used to do. This is maybe on the same level as Lockout, which is another okay, see, Stallone I, breaks out of jail I knew, film. Yeah, I knew that movie was going to come up, and I thought about the movie as I was watching it, and, and I actually kind of fall on the other side of the fence from you because I was expecting this movie to be bad. I was expecting, like, another Expendables 2 type situation where, yeah, these guys are on the same, they're on the screen together, but they're not really being utilized in the right way. And I actually really enjoyed at least the first two-thirds of, of Escape Plan <laughs> because we actually got to see what we wanted in The Expendables, which was not just, hey, we happen to be on screen at the same time, but actually developing a camaraderie and having them interact. And I had a lot of fun with what this movie was developing towards. And one of the things that really surprised me in the first act especially is how meticulously it was holding to its own rules. I mean, that's that's one of the things that with movies like this, if you're going to go for something silly, you're going to go for something that is obviously just, uh, you know, a, a marquee grab like, you know, Schwarzenegger Stallone, at least hold true to your own concept. And I feel like for the first two thirds of the movie, especially like his first escape, I was surprised at how much I bought it. I was like, man, I should not be buying this as much as I am. But they're doing such a great job of like going into these finite details and being very fastidious about, no, this is, he does this, he does, even if, even if that stuff is not possible or not how it would actually work, they, they sell it and they sell it really well. And that made me like the character, which in turn made me like, um, what he did for a living and why he was going to this prison. So I was completely on board. Now the third act, unfortunately went way off the rails 
But I have to say, at the beginning of this movie, I was really fucking enjoying it a lot more than I did Lockout. Well, I wish I could. I wish I could lock up. With you. It's lock up. Lock up. I, would, yeah. I, I have. A, I guess it was a certain amount of nostalgic. Oh, look, it's that actor appeal for for Lock Up. But uh, this one, it's not a bad movie. You're right. It's not. And if you're certainly the only bar you're comparing it to is The Expendables Two. Yeah. It's like the greatest movie ever made. Well, that's all they've been giving us. I mean, when it, in terms of Stallone and Schwarzenegger, that is yeah. the bar right no, now. No, I suppose you're right. Uh, it is much better than that. And, and partially because this, I mean, that, that, that movie, I mean, Schwarzenegger is a supporting character at best. This is the two of them together. Although here I would still say Schwarzenegger is a supporting character, but you know, a lot more screen time. And is given way more to do. In fact, one of the great things about this movie, and I, I think a lot of people latched onto this when it was in theaters, like we actually get to hear Schwarzenegger speak German. Yeah. Which is such an odd thing to be get excited about, but it's like, all we've ever seen from Schwarzenegger is him trying to convince us that he's American and, and try to ignore his overbearing, like, Austrian accent. But, no, in this movie, there, there's a scene where he's, like, basically doing the Lord's Prayer in German, and it sounds so fucking cool coming out of Schwarzenegger that's like, why weren't they doing this in films in the 80s? <laughs> okay. Oh, because Germany was still half yeah, of – okay, yeah. I got it, I got still it. Still valid question, nonetheless. Uh, the idea here is that Ray Breslin, played by uh, Sylvester Stallone, is a as, – as, and this is one of those, like, really? That's a thing? I don't think that's a thing. Uh, head of a Los Angeles-based security firm that deals with maximum security prisons, and his whole deal is he's like a Houdini. He's an escape expert, and so he – makes an arrangement with the warden and like goes secretly into the prisoner. Nobody but the warden knows that he's not really a prisoner. That should never and lead to a complication. That's an airtight system. Within a certain amount of time breaks out of the jail and then shows, Hey, here's how we, here's how I did it. So you know what your weaknesses are, even though it's like one of those. Okay, sure. If you have a super genius <laughs> with, like, with like a, you know, a, a, a degree in chemistry and physics, I mean, this is a, Stallone is good at, everything in this movie. but if you wanted somebody with a degree in chemistry you would get Dolph Lundgren because that is really a thing that, that is, he has his degree yeah I, I think Dolph, it's like biochemistry the real world Dolph Lundgren yeah, yeah. it's fucking weird but he ends up taking a deal that sounds kind of sketchy with that he's hooked up by the CIA to go to this maximum confinement prison that they can't tell him where it is. They're very secretive. This is where we put the worst of the worst and we want to pay you to to get out problem is when he gets there turns out He's been dumped. Nobody, they didn't want anybody to know. They, they removed a tracking device from him. The warden, played by Jim Caviezel, knows nothing. Or he, if, even if he does know something about it, he doesn't give a shit about Sylvester Stallone's character being not just another prisoner. And Stallone finds himself in a situation where, wow, there really is no way out except breaking out. And he teams up with a... a a surprisingly friendly Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Emil or uh uh Emil Rottmeier, Mayer Meyer, Rottmeier. I don't know. I'm not German. I, I don't know how to pronounce I, I, it. I don't know either. Who is? I can pronounce Schwarzenegger, but not Rottmeier for who, some reason. You know, they form a deal. Okay, we'll help each other to break out of this place. And there is actually a lot of fun moments to be had in this. I mean, I certainly agree with you on that. I just think ultimately it felt like it stopped short of being the fun movie it could have been right. for me. It's no, and again, the third act for me is where it falls apart, and it falls apart for two reasons. One is it just – it starts doing those logical things, those like really just boneheaded, easy-to-fix logical things that even if you were the most passive of viewers, you're going to go, okay, but that's dumb. And that's the kind of thing that is all over The Expendables 2 and was largely absent 
from the first two acts of this film. So when we hit them in the third, I'm like, oh, come on. There's you were so close. There's also a lot of like, was that really supposed to be a secret? Because I think it, I saw that coming like 10 minutes into well, this film. Well, there's two, there's two, I guess, big surprises in the film. One of which they actually got me with because I didn't think to be looking for it. Yeah. I didn't necessarily think the movie needed that twist. I liked it, but I didn't see a need for a twist. So I wasn't looking for a twist. So when it came, I was like, oh, okay, that's, okay, that's kind of cool. And then the other one at the end, I was like, Wait, why is that important again? I don't really why care that? about yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, oh, that's I don't give a shit about that. I don't know. That's the thing. It's like, yeah, not a terribly good wrap up, I thought overall. And a lot of the sub- supporting cast are like, why are you there? Like, Fifty Cent is supposed to be, believe it or not, Fifty Cent is supposed to be a computer wizard, a hacking hey, master. Hey, he has got glasses on. <laughs> that is the universal symbol for nerd. <laughs> right. He knows how to use a computer. I was like, oh god. It made me laugh that he actually has. You know, Fifty Cent is famous for even in his acting for being quite the mum. Like, I remember the, what was it, Get Rich or Die Trying? I was like, I can't understand anything he's saying in this fucking movie. And here he's got... He has a bullet in his jaw, Chris! to his credit, he has excellent diction. Yes. He's so (laughs) well-spoken. And then I watched some of the extra features, and he's all like... I was like, God damn it, we know you can talk! Man, that is just the the most lowball of compliments. Like, your diction is good. Well, so considering how bad it is the rest of the time... Uh, Amy, I even kind of liked him in this. Amy, I don't know what it Amy is. Amy Ryan's in this. Vincent D'Onofrio's in this. Sam Neill's in this. It's it's got it's almost like it's got all the pieces that should work together, but it never really becomes more than the sum of its parts for me. And in fact, I I actually started to get bored during the second act. I was like, okay, can we just move this along? Especially when there was stuff like this is supposed to be the most impossible like modern to hard to break out of prison in the world the first shot we see of it are all these separate glass cells support i mean it looks like fortress at first and then it's like pretty much just like a normal prison after that you're like you don't really see much futuristic stuff at all after that at all and when they show you when he's like able to like very early on he figures out how to at least get out to the point where you can tell where the prison is you're like oh that's it yeah and there's there's also a moment where there is a bad guy that blows up and his, like, like charred to a gelatinous blob body hits a dumpster. And it's like, oh, that was kind of extreme. And then, like, two seconds later, they cut back to it. And for no reason at all, it flips from the dumpster onto the floor. Not like it slowly rolls off. But it looks like someone took a spatula and stuck it under the body and turned <laughs> it because it was done on that side. And I was just like, what the fuck was that? You don't want to overcook your bad guy, I'm just saying. <laughs> You had to hire somebody to create that effect. There's not an actual body burning on the set. And when you saw that, you didn't go, just cut that scene out. No, even the dumpster was like, oh, fuck that. Get off me. <laughs> so this comes with a few extra features. The audio commentary by the director and the co-writer. And why would you have a commentary and not have Schwarzenegger and Sly? Yeah. I have no idea. It's like, fuck you. Don't even put that on here. Well, you can tell there was this was a troubled production because it used to have a different name. There used to be a different yeah. director attached. The first three people they talked to in the behind the scenes are all producers and they're giving the producer more credit for the film than the director which is never a good sign guys this is you know i you know i'm gonna say this is one of those movies that it should build in wow factor and it drops in wow factor it does along and like arnold schwarzenegger sliced alone they should have been fucking on another planet with like alien guards that should have been the reveal something crazy you know instead it just gets more dull christopher (laughs) lambert shows up and is like you're in Fortress. And it's like, who are you again? That would have been so cool because Lambert was like the one guy who would escape. <laughs> uh, there's also a making of escape plan, about 23 minutes, a look at uh, real life maximum security places, which I actually kind of enjoyed watching. It was like a look at, you know, 
all right, that's all bullshit. Like, I was shocked at the, how most extra features, you don't get people going, man, this movie's stupid. But this yeah. feature's filled with, like, experts at maximum security prisons going, man, this whole film is just filled with bullshit. Yeah. Like, th- like all these things, I like, know there, that would have been there, and that would have been there. And it's actually kind of fun to watch on that level. You get some idea of like that, a little bit of a relief if you actually live near a maximum security prison and knowing, oh, it's probably a lot safer than this place. <laughs> well, it was funny too. I was watching the behind the scenes of where they shot this, which was at this giant NASA hangar in New Orleans. And I was there. They were filming this movie at the exact same time as another movie we're going to talk about later in the show, which I was on set for. And I was like, why does that look so for, oh, because I fucking parked right there. Like, uh, what weird. the fuck? Uh, there's also a look just between profiles of Arnie and Sly and then eight, nine, nine, eight minutes, eight minutes of deleted scenes. Sorry, I'm going blind, apparently. Nine, twelve, Z. Is that a backwards Q? What is going on? <laughs> no, I, you know what? I think this is a movie that has, there are, there is a lot about this movie that's fun and entertaining and satisfying on that level of what we've wanted to see from Sly and, and uh, Arnie sharing the screen. Uh, unfortunately, I think it just starts to unravel in a way that it, it never kind of, it goes into a nosedive it doesn't correct. Yeah. I mean, and there is the high point. Every time it's Arnie and Sly on screen, it actually works. They yeah. have a huge amount of chemistry together. You were, you were like, this movie may be just kind of meh, but I'd love to see them do another film together. The, whatever happens next, just put a little more work into it. <laughs> Although I will say there's a moment in this film where Arnie grabs a uh, a minigun, and it's so much more satisfying than any action sequence in The Expendables. It's just like... Oh shit, Arnold's gonna kill some motherfuckers. You are correct, sir. Ah, well, that was Escape Plan, and now we're going to uh, tunnel our way into Justice League War. Boom, 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 blam. As promised, discussing the latest in the new DC's uh, animated universe, the second, arguably the first, since early Flashpoint was sort of like the launch of New 52 in a lot of ways, uh, the crossover point. This is the first full on. Uh, new 52 universe DC animated thing, and it kind of stinks. Aquaman! <laughs> oh, good God, what is he good for? Absolutely nothing! Not being in this movie. Well, yeah. He's Just not in this at all. At all? So <laughs> no. he's so worthless, he can't even be in the Justice League no, anymore. They actually have a, a little, like, post credit stinger that has one of Aquaman's enemies. <laughs> yeah. As what? Ocean Master. <laughs> Who's like what? this? Like, wait, Ocean Master. I had to look him up. I was like, Ocean Master. Who the fuck is Ocean Master? Wow, they ran out of good villain names about halfway through, didn't they? They really did. Ocean Master. Uh, Sounds this- like a boat. Sounds like a, a brand of jet ski. This is a, you know, a restart. The Justice League, they, none of them, none of these superheroes know each other at all. Uh, we start off following, uh, Green Lantern, which is Hal Jordan here, who is the biggest douchebag in the world. I mean, like, there's been a lot of douchey versions of Hal Jordan. This guy is like the bad guy in a fraternity party movie douchey. Hal Whoa. Jordan. Like with it, like Green Lantern with his collar turned up. Pretty much. Wow. He, he is that douchey. He is, there's no point in this movie you <laughs> Blonde like. Blonde Lantern. Who just goes around bragging about how he's more awesome than everybody else, even though he pretty much gets his ass kicked a lot. Uh, and he, while chasing these creatures, pan demons who are appearing and sort of setting mysterious devices around the city, around the cities of the world, he ends up meeting up with Batman of sort of a somewhat antagonistic relationship. And then they meet up with Superman, who is, well, but first Batman is pretty much what you'd expect from Batman. He's been doing it for a little while, but everyone still thinks he's a myth including these other heroes. So when they meet him, they're like, wow, you're actually real. 
Huh. Uh, and they, they play Batman okay. He's not that, they don't give him much depth, but he's Batman. Superman, on the other hand, is a big dumb jock. And they meet him and <laughs> he's just like, he's, well, punch it. It makes me feel better type of guy. Like he's almost no, there's nothing to him but that. It, he's really dumb. <laughs> like, so it's like Superman as written by Batman. And of course they all, pretty much, they all fight each other. And then it turns out that these creatures, the pan demons that are coming are the legions of uh, that are coming from the world of Apocalypse, sent by Darkseed, who of course is the the DC universe version of Thanos. I've always found Thanos considerably more interesting myself, but that's neither here nor there. Thanos comes into this world, girl. Oh, not Thanos. Sorry, Darkseed comes into this world. <laughs> whoa, whoa! Thanos shows up in this no. exclusive. Uh, Darkseed shows up, yells, "I am Darkseed," and then starts a me Omega beaming the shit out of the city until everyone basically punches him down. That's the plot of this movie. This. Good 40 minutes of just them figuring out how to work together. No real strategy. It's just them trying repeatedly to use their powers and punch him that don't work until they all gradually go, maybe if we started all attacking him at once, it would work better. And of course, over time that does. And it's really, really uninteresting to watch. And every character is pretty fucking lame. The points go to the Flash. Barry Allen has always been one of my favorite DC characters. If only... They just don't give him much to say, so it's hard to really dislike him. Yeah, right. <laughs> he seems to be, like, oddly, even though The Flash is often viewed as a sort of more irresponsible, a very, like, uh, I'm going to do this, I don't care what anybody says character here. He's more like the guy who's actually listening to everybody and doing, you know, doing the smart thing. Uh, Wonder Woman is the female version of Superman, pretty much. She's big. She's dumb. She's just a warrior. She, you know, she cut her things with her sword first, ask questions later. <laughs> <laughs> the know. superheroine version of Sonny Crockett from Miami Vice. even worse, every time she and Superman's together, she's like, hi, Superman. She's like, like, turns into like a little sorority girl. It's like, oh, dear God. Oh, my God. It's so awful i can't even begin to tell oh dear god are you serious yeah. like <laughs> but none of that made me as mad as as now they've been forced to i don't know what exactly the legal situation was but both marvel and uh uh dc have had a character named captain marvel uh in dc it was you know the kid billy batson who got the power of the gods and when he says shazam he turns from a little kid into the full-on adult and badass superman level powered uh captain marvel well they can't call him captain marvel anymore so now they're actually calling him shazam which as wow. a longtime comics fan just is like a fucking dagger in my side. Like, that is not his fucking name! Shazam! This is so many years of correcting people. No, no, no. That's just what he, that's just what he says. You that's were that not guy. His name. name is not Shazam! It's it not Shazam! <laughs> and it was funny, too, because, like, ten, like, the last ten years, they spent all this time reinventing Captain Marvel and making him a really interesting character and making his villains really cool. And then they reboot him, and worst of all, this kid who's, like, you know, this little whatever teenager when he turns into captain marvel like traditionally in the comic books he was like he had an adult adult's mind not anymore <laughs> no, he's a 13 year old and a big fuck you punch everything body who acts like a dick all the time wow, it seems like, like average 13 year old they've oversimplified all the characters in this yeah well they're going oh well, it's back to the beginning yeah it's back to the beginning of like being actually 13 year old writer and going i just want to see people punch things wow <laughs> i want to see wonder woman's titties wow uh i don't know it's like it's not like the worst thing ever but it's certainly not good there's some really really bad dialogue writing in here uh the plot is just so simple as to be like why is this even 
a plot. This is a this is one fight sequence in the middle of a story. This is based on the normally good writer Jeff Johns and artist Jim Lee's Justice League origin storyline from the New 52. I've not read it. I had heard pretty mediocre stuff about it. This doesn't work as well as like a lot of the new casting. I mean, pay fucking the the original Bruce Tim animated voice guys anything they want to play these roles. People want to see those original, you know, I'm sorry. We want to see Conroy as Batman. Nobody's ever done Batman's voice better. And they got, uh, God, who'd they get here? Oh, Jason O'Mara, who is passable. Alan Tudyk as Superman. I mean, I like Alan Tudyk, but, but as, as Superman? Superman, yeah. What the fuck is that? That's very uh, odd. Stephen Blum, who I like, but as Darkseid. I'm sorry, Michael Ironside used to play Darkseid. You're not going to get better than that. Yeah, it seems like they're they're so high up on sort of rebooting and doing a different version of all these characters. I that Darkseid, I think it's Darkseid, but whatever. But you know what I mean? Like they're they're so stripping them down and doing them a different way that they're ignoring their own history in terms of even the animated versions of these characters. Well, that's the thing. They're so determined to like start selling New Fifty Two shit. That's all this feels like. Like we've got to sell New Fifty Two shit. So let's do it this way and. I, you know, I mean, maybe for someone totally new to this, they might li- at least somewhat like it. Like I said, it's got no depth to it at all. But, I, and it, in fact, I found some of it downright annoying. Got the cyborg character who DC's been trying so hard for years now to push as like a A-list character. Basically because they don't have an A-list black character and Marvel's got lots of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're like, I, he's cyborg. He's a dude who got... Ruined in an accident, now he's part robot. and He's he, RoboCop. He was a teen titan for like 20 years. That's hard for me to take him seriously, is all I'm saying. Yeah. I know that a lot of people like Cyborg. I just like, here it's like very much he's kind of the, the, with this, if there's any character who they give any sort of backstory to, the only character we really see their origin of, it's Cyborg, and he's terribly uninteresting. Is it, with Cyborg, is it really a backstory or is it just an instruction manual? It's a black story. <laughs> what? Nothing. <laughs> really? During Black Exploitation History Month? Come yeah, on, man. I'm just Be saying. more sensitive. All right. So this comes with a 21-minute look at deconstructing JL Ward that takes a look at uh, the director and uh, Jim Lee commenting on key scenes from it. It's it's like a video commentary. There's a the art and life of Jim Lee, who is admittedly a great artist who often teams up with writers I can't stand for some reason. I'm not sure why. Love mm. his art. Don't terribly like who he always works with. I'm looking at you, Jeff Loeb. Uh, <laughs> There's a look at from animatic to pencil tests. There's a sneak peek at the next one, Son of Batman, which is already getting a lot of shit based on early screen, like looks at the trailer. I think it looked okay, but, and it's based on Grant Morrison's Batman and Son comic book arc, which I actually kind of liked. Uh, and then there's, of course, as there always is, a couple of earlier episodes from DC comic animate, animated television shows of stuff that relates, uh, stuff from Justice League Unlimited, Brave and the Bold, and from, uh, uh, Justice League Invasion, Destiny Calling. So, I, it's not the world's best package of Blu-ray extras either. This is the, probably the weakest point of anything I've seen in the DC animated, uh, universe re- home releases so far. But I don't know. Some pe- I talked to a few people who said, "Really, I liked it." I'm like, "Well, have you? Do you know what comic books are?" <laughs> wow, you <laughs> really, you really were that guy, weren't I'm you? I'm sorry. It's just like one of those. I grew. Up, oh, you liked it. I guess you don't. Remember I, I realize a lot of that has to do with because I grew up with these characters, and I really don't like them reinventing them as all being sort of snotty dicks. I just, 
it makes me very displeased to see them all rewritten. It makes you be way. kind of a snotty dick to people who like it. It does. <laughs> it does, in fact. Well, I'm actually making up the fact that there are people I know who liked it. I really don't know anyone who did. <laughs> I'm sure someone out there did. I'm and, sorry. And dear listeners, you can't see it at home, but when he said that last part, his eyes were closed very, very smugly. It was awesome. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I get it. It's I totally my ugly get it. smug. <laughs> Well, from Justice League War, we're going to join up with the Dallas Buyers Club, which is one of my absolute favorite movies of last year. Oh, I thought this was about Jerry Jones. No, it is not about <laughs> Jerry Jones, thankfully, or it would not have been one of my favorite movies of last year. Uh, yeah, Dallas Buyers Club is about – it's 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 based on a true story about uh, Ron Woodruff, who is like the most shit-kicking – Texas bumpkin you would ever hope to not run into at a yeah. bar after he's had too many drinks. Not in a good way. This ain't Timothy Oliphant and Justify. No, 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 this no. This is the douchebag who gets drunk, hits on your girlfriend, vomits on your shoes, and then still punches you in the throat. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, he's... But the the thing about him is he's a very blue-collar guy. He works out in a in a fucking oil field. Like, true blue Texan. And, oh, oh, and in his spare time, he, uh, he likes to ride in the rodeo. So, like, the, you could not find a more Texas Texan than Ron Woodruff, and of course, that's why they got Matthew McConaughey to play His him. His blood is actually made of equal parts Lone Star and AIDS. It's true. <laughs> that's kind of the, the problem here is that this guy contracts AIDS, and he it's through uh, basically intravenous drug use. But of course, all of his friends assume it's because, because again, like you have to remember that in in the eighties. There was a lot of misinformation going around about AIDS oh. and a lot of prejudice against people who had it uh, to the point that it was like, you know, the thing that people believe is you only get it if you're gay and you could contract it from somebody by touching them, by being even in the same proximity. Like, so what we start to see is this guy who is a good old boy starting to hang out with the same group of friends and they're keeping their distance and straight up, you know, maligning him behind his back, even to his face. And he's not dealing with it well. Well, yeah, he was the guy. He was their hero. He was yeah. the guy who tagged all the hot. But not hot, but let's face it, like, you know, the mid 80s Dallas hot 80s Dallas hot. Yeah, like I wish y'all were in Austin so I could take you to the Dallas nightclub here and then go, yeah, these girls. Basically, (laughs) what it means is not hot, but enormous hair. Yeah, exactly. And really sleazy and easy to hook up with. And, well, you know, I mean, so not totally not hot then, I guess. But. Yeah, it was like, we we have lower standards. like, I was worried watching this this is going to be a story about a guy who's like, fuck it, I'm going to keep having sex with him, I don't give a shit. And it's not. No. He becomes aware rather quickly of what exactly is happening here as he starts degrading rather fast. And his doctor, played by Jennifer Garner, tells him, you know, look, you really, you have maybe 30 days left to live. Um, we have this drug called AZT, and if any of y'all were familiar at all what was going on in that period, it was this drug they were pushing very hard that didn't do shit. In no. fact, it did more damage than it, than it helped. Right. Uh, but it was the only one the FDA had approved for testing on humans at that point, and, uh, it's not helping at all. And, and meanwhile, doctors in other countries are coming up with these, these promising, uh, you know, treatments, not necessarily cures, but definitely promising treatments, and there's a lot of speculation as to whether the, uh, uh, what is it? The uh, what you just mentioned? The organization, the food and the FDA. Yeah. Is it really that they're protecting us, or is it that they're in bed with these pharmaceutical companies who don't want these drugs still here? Still a big question. It's still a major question in in American healthcare. So what Ron Woodruff decides to do is he's going to set up these uh, because he is a te- you know he's a Texan, he's a true blue capitalist. At the same time, he's going to set up a business where basically you buy into a club, and as part of your membership, you get these drugs every, every month. 
and it becomes wildly successful. Yeah, because there are people dying of AIDS all over the damn place at this point. I mean, it was like it had built to a head when no one knew what was going on. And suddenly there's all these people like, why am I suddenly real sick? Well, everybody's kind of getting hit with the same time with this thing. People are lining up. And through this experience of having to deal regularly with these people, he would never even given the time of day outside of like the skin off his fist to like a mere year beforehand. He starts being able to understand these people and that they are, in fact, just as human as anyone else. Uh, partially through a friendship he develops with one of the, you know, I think a shoe-in for best supporting actor possibly this year, Jared Leto, who plays Rayon, a, a drag queen who is uh, barely recognizable as Jared Leto, and they form a business relationship together to be able to do this, to release this. And the whole time, he's fighting with the government and the FDA, and all these people are trying to put a stop to this. And then all these people are supporting him, because the drug they're giving him is more, they're, they're giving people is more dangerous, almost than the disease itself. Right. And he's, the stuff that he has, it's like, look, you say it's not proven to help. It's helping. Yeah. <laughs> and this is based on a true story. This guy who lived, what, like nine years longer than he was supposed to or something like that because of this. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of – there's a lot of impact just from that of realizing that this is exactly what went down. There's a lot of impact about being able to consider things that go on even today in yeah. the, the world with the FDA's approval or disapproval. Of and that, I mean, I mean, largely the, the FDA and that, that whole weird relationship that, we, you know, the – the commerce relationship with healthcare is the reason it's it was you know prior to the Affordable Health Care Act impossible to get fucking healthcare in this country yeah. if your employer didn't provide it. I can totally see a hundred years from now there's going to be a rash of documentaries and narrative films about how incredibly corrupt the FDA and the pharmaceutical companies were at this period of time. Yeah, how they basically owned what was going on to some degree in the political landscape. I don't know. I don't want to get conspiracy theory about this, but when you see, when you hear stuff like this that is absolutely true, it's hard not to go, man, that shit is fucked up. Something's got to change. We don't want to go conspiracy theory, but we are running yarn to pictures on billboards all over the house. We, we totally are very obsessively, probably with a, a soundtrack instrumental by Trent Reznor. Yes. Yes. This is actually a film that it, the thing is, this movie is not going to blow you away in and of itself. It's not going to grab you and shake you around the way something like 12 Years a Slave did. Um, it's not the best movie of the year, but it's a pretty darn good movie regardless. Uh, it has a lot of important things to say, and it's strengthened so much by a tremendous performance, one of pretty much everything he's done in the last four or five years by Matthew McConaughey, who who slims down to what he looks like he's 90 pounds he goes full machinist yeah. for this movie and then as well like i said jared leto who's also so amazing in this movie just the two of them alone in here are enough of a reason to watch this i i definitely enjoyed it more than anything because of their parts but i will say that even though it's not like a super long film it still felt too long it's about 116 minutes and it felt like it could have lost 10 or 15 minutes from that easily it goes on a bit too much where it doesn't need to I just, it felt like it was trying to create depth for some of these characters that you just didn't really care if they had it or not. Like, there's too much focusing on Jennifer Garner at points where you're like, she really doesn't have much to do with this whole thing on the whole. Well, I mean, but she is, I think, I think I like the way they used her in her kind of being the face of the sort of the working within the system against, you know, organized commercial medicine. Uh, so I actually liked what they did with her. And, and for me, this is what this movie is, is it's an extreme example of, you know, the getting to know someone by walking a mile in their shoes, because 
the transformation of Matthew McConaughey, uh, you know, physically, yes, absolutely, it's mind-boggling, but just emotionally watching him go from somebody who is so bigoted and so prejudicial to somebody who who lives amongst a community of people that he had scorned and what what he takes from that and how that fundamentally changes him. And to me, that is the strength of the movie. And, and it is, you know, obviously aided by these tremendous performances by McConaughey and Leto. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, the strength is are those performances. But uh, this comes with not much in the way of extra features. It's which only is odd. A, oh, yeah, I know. Four-minute look inside Dallas Buyers Club, which is an EPK, basically. And then five minutes of deleted scenes, and that's it. I would like to see an actual documentary about the real story. Yeah, see, that's a, more, I never understand. And this is becoming, like a normal thing now that these films that are coming out of true life stories, they're just not even bothering with that anymore. I'm like, that's if there's ever one extra I'll actually watch, that's the extra I'm interested in seeing. Definitely. I think the studio that's going to start excelling is the one that goes, if we're making a movie that's based on true events, let's just keep Ken Burns on retainer. Seriously. Have him do, even if we just have him do a couple hour thing or even an hour documentary about whatever we're covering, we have Ken Burns on our special features. That's an excellent idea. You should do that immediately. Yes. Somebody call Shout Factory. Hey, Shout, get Ken <laughs> Burns to do the Night of the Demons documentary. <laughs> no. <laughs> Which we will be talking about momentarily. But yeah, Dallas Buyers Club, definitely one of my favorite movies of the year, if for no other reason than the tremendous performances. But also, I, I was really moved by the the evolution of the main character of, of the protagonist in, in the movie. AIDS, 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 AIDS. Most of the people in this movie have AIDS. And I'm sorry. We're, we're so alike. We're like a hive mind. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm not positive that joke is good. Um, <laughs> we're horrible. Yeah, we My are. apologies to anyone who may be dying or already dead from this absolutely, in all honesty, completely fucking fucked up terrible disease. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, from there, we're going to move on to Burton and Taylor, which I'm assuming is not a clothing label. <laughs> it does kind of sound like one, doesn't yeah. it? Now, although I got the shirt at Burton and Taylor. That being said, this is a very fashion fashionable movie. This is a BBC4 TV film that was based on uh, the, the you know unforgettable duo of Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, right on. Yeah. Uh, who were had a very public and very tumultuous relationship over years and years. They actually got married, divorced, then married again, then divorced again, and kept working with each other. This takes the interesting choice of having it take place after they've already been divorced the second time, and the last thing they ever did, did together, which was a theatrical production of a play that was very much... uh it was a little too similar to their actual problems in their relationship at point one point during this Richard Burton's like, don't you understand? They're not laughing at the play. They're laughing at us. Is it, was that who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? No, no, it's not. It's uh-huh. uh, I forget. It's something I'd never even heard of some, some minor play. It was given, I mean, it was completely, uh, attacked at the time by the press. And well, it should be. I mean, like I said, it was, it, it you know, as the character points out at one point, this is just the lowest kind of pandering us being in this play. Mm-hmm. So this is not the Lindsay Lohan version of this story, No, correct? I wasn't even aware there was one. Yeah, it's called, and I shit you not, Liz and Dick is the name of the Lindsay Lohan version, which sounds like just her could, struggle to stop being a bar skank. Yeah, it could be just the Lindsay Lohan story. <laughs> yeah. Now, this actually is Helena Bonham Carter as Elizabeth Taylor, who is positively glowing here. It's a slightly older, approaching middle age. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor, who's still got that shine, still beloved by millions, who eats up every bit of the attention. And Dominic West, who's one of those actors who I just really love right now, who's playing Richard Burton, who is 
so accurate that it's almost a little frightening to see him playing the role, who is much more of a serious theatrical actor. And it's, you ever had a, I mean, I know you, you got married pretty young, uh, mm-hmm. to your high school sweetheart. I did. I, I went through quite a few, I, I dated quite a few women along the way. And I can tell you, sometimes you'll have that person in your life who you're wildly, uncontrollably attracted to. And every time you're together, before you hook up, you have a great time. And when you do, you have amazing sex. But then within a day or two, everything in your life starts going terribly wrong because of it. They're just poison to you. It's mm-hmm. like this magnetic attraction. And every time you fall into that trap, it fucks up, fucks you up. It fucks them up. It fucks up everything. This is the relationship they had. They couldn't keep their hands off each other, but they knew that they were poisoned for each other. Yeah. Uh, Taylor being more of a aware of, or I'm sorry, Burton being more aware of this fact than Taylor was. He uh, as well was fighting alcoholism and Taylor was not even trying to fight her alcoholism. She was fighting it every with, never mind. Yeah. I was, <laughs> she took of, a fall in the yeah, first round. I realized that making a joke about every swallow, it just, you, then it just, it, <laughs> Yeah, it could and words come out, and clearly I've been drinking. There's a lot of charm to be had here in watching this, and certainly, like I said, I was able to apply it to like situations where I I can say, yeah, I know what that's like. Uh, Those they're just they're so the chemistry between the two is so strong on screen that I wish they had done this more of a sort of like, here's the whole story of their relationship. It's an interesting choice to do it as a slice of life and just this later part to illustrate, you know, here's why nothing ever worked out for them before, but I kind of would have liked to have seen scenes of them being in Cleopatra and stuff like that. I think that would have been a lot more fun. So I think I came out of this with a little bit of disappointment that not being aware that it was such a sort of a limited scope to it. I mean, it is a TV movie. It's limited in budget as well. That's part of that. But there's so much to be said for those performances by Carter and West that it's it's worth watching alone for that. Well, I'm, I will definitely check this out. I've always been fascinated by the relationship between Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. And it's one of those sort of weird classic Hollywood lore type things that has always appealed to me. So, yeah, I will definitely be checking this out. So that was not the clothing label of Burton and Taylor. I'm not sure that is a clothing label. It's not. Uh, we're going to move on from there to Million Dollar Baby, which I kind of feel like has been out for a while. No, no. You're thinking of the Alice Cooper song. Oh, am I? Billion Dollar Babies. Well, I'm not familiar enough with uh, Alice Cooper's canon to know that one. No, this was in the theaters back in 2004, so I guess it's kind of older anyway. <laughs> well done. Well done. Uh, this was a kind of a surprise at the Oscars. No one really expected this film when it first came out to get as strong a reaction as it did. It was it, it was an underdog story that was itself at the Oscars an underdog story. It really was. It was nominated for seven, I believe, awards, and it won four, including Best Picture, and a second Best Actress for Hilary Swank, which raises the question, how does this woman who was only in her early 30s when she won her second Oscar not done really anything of notice since 2004? I, I, it's hard to say, you're man. Like, she should have been the next Meryl Streep, and what happened? I have no idea. Uh, this movie is one of the ones that splits people because whereas the first two acts of it are this wonderful sports boxing film, like underdog boxing story with Clint Eastwood directing it and starring it. It's a guy who, uh, along with his, basically his best friend and ex-boxer who's sort of the janitor for the gym that Clint Eastwood owns, they reluctantly 
start working with this young, very Southern <laughs> sort of white trash girl played by Hilary Swank, who's just determined, despite the fact she's already 31, she's going to be a boxer. Uh, he ends up in a position like, okay, fine, I'm going to train you anyway. And it's a fun movie. God, the fights with Hillary Swank, where she's just a, she's a hurricane, like the hurricane. She's a beast. She comes out fighting these, okay, this fight should go, oh, it's already over. Because she just went out there, whack, whack, boom, yeah. down. And after a while, he's like, no one will fight you if you keep knocking them out in 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Lead them on for a while and then knock them out. But it leads to a very, like, what the fuck? third act that sends this movie into an extremely dark place. Like, wow, the whole third act of this is so sad. Uh, I mean, I watched this again last night, and yeah, I found myself like weeping on the couch, even though I already knew everything that was going to happen. I I think, despite the fact, I think think a lot of people don't like this movie because that's not what they wanted to happen. And of course it's not what you want to happen. Yeah. It's not just another boxing movie, partially because it goes someplace you don't expect. And those things that they do with it, they earn it. The, the, the relationship between Clint Eastwood and Hillary Swank is really the centerpiece of this movie, which has a lot to do with the fact we keep saying that he's, we never do figure out what happened, but that his daughter is estranged from him, won't ever answer any of his letters. They keep coming, re- being returned unopened and returned to sender. And he, forms, maybe she saw the hereafter. <laughs> ah, yeah, that would, that would do it. And he forms, starts to form a new sort of daughter-father relationship with her. And that really becomes even that much more powerful in the end of it. I, I personally love this movie. This was my pick the year it came out for Best Picture. It is phenomenal film. Uh, and a lot of people yelled at me about loving this movie. And I was like, I'm sorry. I just, I feel like you're just mad because you didn't like that turn the plot took. But, and I can understand it being upsetting, once again, as supposed to. But if you actually, sit, you know, c- control yourself from getting mad that it's not the movie you wanted to see... It, everything that happens is there for a good reason. Yeah, definitely. And and you're right. The relationship between uh, Hillary Swank and Clint Eastwood is is the centerpiece of the film. But it, I think the stuff that happens in the third act after that sort of big shock is where the movie is most interesting to me. Of course, it, yeah. you know that not it's only just fun before that. Yeah, and not not only the how their relationship develops, but sort of the questions it raises about people's. And you know, it's funny that you talk about. You know, expectations that people had going into this and the, like, knee-jerk emotional reactions that they may have had, it kind of raises that question about how we deal with, like, you know, the whole thing about family members and people in long-term sort of vegetative states and and what that means and quality of life. And there's a lot of interesting, like, philosophical meat to dig into that is totally relevant. You know, it's as relevant today as it was when the movie oh, was released. Oh, so much, as well as dealing with issues of, like, uh, you know, what does it mean to have lived a life? What's important, you know, what is important in life, Conan? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to, uh, to not watch Escape Plan a second time. Yes, that is important. You know, I, I, this, especially watching this a second time, I found myself that much more digging into those questions and really enjoying all the things you have to ask yourself. I found it absolutely fascinating. And, I, you know, this is one of those movies I think I liked even more the second time watching it here. Now, of course, this is an anniversary release for it, which you go, okay, so what are they doing special? Well, sadly, this is the exact same transfer as the previous existing one, which was just kind of okay in the first place. The only difference is now the audio is lossless, which is nice, I guess, but you think they would have, I mean, it's been quite a while since it initially came out on Blu-ray. They think they would have remastered it again, but including all the original extra features, which was nice, including my favorite of which is a interview with James Lipton and the cast just sitting there for, you know, 40 minutes, just 
talking about the movie, which is always cool. Was it an episode of Inside the Actors? No, no, Studio? they were no? actually had a specially filmed for this oh, wow. thing. I uh, loved that show. The new things here is a commentary with the producer, eh, and then a retrospective documentary, which is always cool when they can put that together with uh, screenwriter Paul Haggis, Clint Eastwood, Hillary Swank, Morgan Freeman, and the producer as they talk about the whole experience of having made it. So overall, I mean, this is still like the best version you can get of it. No question. It's a shame they didn't remaster it, you know, again for the newer technology. But that being said, it's such a good movie. If you don't already own this, this is one of those should be able to pick it up. No questions asked. <laughs> you know, I will keep coming back to this film again and again. It's so beautifully made and written and performed. Uh, it's just a classic. Excellent. Right on. Well, that was the new-ish version of Million Dollar Baby. New-ish. And from there, we're going to talk about, or Chris is going to talk about at least, Mother of George. Mother of George. George. George of the Jungle. I was oh, no, thinking... that's horrible. I can't say that considering what this movie is about. I'm sorry. Oh, I okay. I even said that. Whew. Okay. Did you sidestep a landmine you didn't intend I did, to? I didn't sidestep, but I stepped right on it. Oh, I didn't shit. mean to, because this takes place with a bunch of Nigerians, and you can't say George of the Jungle. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's not, okay. That's not appropriate, I apologize. But this was, uh, premiered at the U.S. Dramatic Competition at the 2013 Sundance Festival. Tells the story of a just married Nigerian couple who live in Brooklyn. And actually, the marriage scene in here, if you're a clueless white person like me, is actually really fascinating to see how, like, the Nigerian culture and, like, all these things are the, the marriage ceremony is so different and kind of cool you know all the types of music that they play and the food that they eat i was like wow this is really neat i want to go to a nigerian wedding <laughs> yeah sounds like fun yeah i should have answered that email from that nigerian guy who keeps emailing me <laughs> something about a prince or something all i gotta do is send him like five grand and you're in now the thing about this story it's one of those so simple as it will bore the pants off of a lot of people i suspect you might have to have some sort of automatic interest in the topic like you might be really interested in this sort of nigerian culture and what's going on with it which you get bits and pieces throughout of that that are interested or you might be really interested in the plot uh which is that uh the the lead character uh at a at a nike or a nike they just call her i guess is she, you know they the, this whole culture is like you have to have children or your marriage is kind of pointless like nothing else is more important than having children and when she finds out that she's not getting pregnant. She's like, okay, we need to go see a doctor. The husband is very macho and is like, no, there's no way I'm going to go see a doctor. There's no way. Nothing is wrong with me. Uh, uh, even though she's like, it might be something wrong with me. We need to go see a doctor together. One of those guys. She doesn't know what to do. Uh, she goes yeah, through a lot of different possibilities that are, that, that lead her to understand how kind of, that this, culture's decision that this is the most important thing over anything else is kind of screwy uh even to the point they're like well as long as somebody impregnates you just don't tell them right <laughs> kind of thing so anybody might be interested who has had fertility problems or something like that and led to psychological distress you might find this interesting as well but ultimately not a lot is going on in this movie it's beautiful looking though and that's because uh the cinematographer is Bradford Young who did Ain't Them Body Saints uh, okay. the work on that which was a gorgeous looking film and this is like i said equally beautiful it's bolstered by relatively strong performances uh from these actors none of which i i recognize from stuff but they they may have very well have been in other things i've seen along the way uh i believe the lead actor was in a bunch of Jim Jarmusch films including The Way of the uh, Night Ghost Dog and Night on Earth and ah uh, like yeah 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 uh, Isaac de ben Cole. Yeah. I'm probably saying that totally wrong. Probably. But, and uh, Nike, I guess she's, I guess this is the first time her thing for her. I'm not oh, really wow. sure. But no, she's been in a few things, I guess, but not nothing I've seen 
Um, oh, yeah, no way she was in my soul to take. Oh, no. I never saw it. I swear. I convinced myself. Oh, my God. Myself. It was one of the worst things ever. Was, wasn't that Wes Craven, too? Yeah. What the fuck? It, you know, not to get off on a tangent or anything, but you watch the movie and you're like, this is just a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel that you had laying around your office and just put a different title on. One of the 80 or so scripts they never made. Yeah. yeah. That's absolutely what it feels like. not one of the good ones. Nope. All right, so this movie, Mother of George, <laughs> is put out by Oscilloscope Laboratories, who it, it you know they're one of those companies. A lot of people get a membership and just get sent everything they put they get put out because they r- repeatedly put out movies that are good for what they are, but are very niche in an art crowd. Some of them end up being fantastic. Some of them just aren't going to be to your taste. This mm-hmm. is one of the ones that for me wasn't really to my taste, but I could recognize that it was a very well made film for what it was. I just I find with dramas. I need like this type of drama. I really need to have something that is a touchstone for me, or I'm going to have a hard time really getting sure. absorbed in the story. And this just didn't have that for me. So uh, I I can't recommend it to people who are just like me. But if those other things sounded interesting, <laughs> it's actually it is a fascinating piece about this you know this bit of culture, this Nigerian culture that I know nothing about, but it's just not enough of that. You know what I mean? Like, I would right. like to have seen more of the stuff like the wedding sequence. And there's an awful lot of sex scenes that are really unsexy. Like, it's a lot of sex scenes that are like, it's not like sex, like film to be sexy, just grunting and, and pushing and just watching someone be bored while someone grunts and pushes on top of them. You're like, can we move on, please? And that didn't resonate with you at all? No, did Weird. not resonate. I've never odd. had that experience. Okay. All right. No one starfishes under me, Brian Salisbury. Well, that's the starfishes. You never heard that? You just no. spread eagled lying there. Don't move much. <laughs> what if, if they lose an appendage during sex? Does it grow back? It's Where did star- the hotter starfishing is such a weird term. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a weird way to end this mother of George review, but, uh, <laughs> that's where we ended up. So <laughs> sorry. I'm so, I was so terrified. Maybe the starfishing thing hit me out of left field. Cause I was still thinking about the terrifying prospect of there being someone out there who is just like you and who might actually be listening to this show. She's like, don't, you just said, I don't recommend this for people who are just like me. Yeah. You know, if you meet your doppelganger, you're supposed to kill them. Well, oh yeah. You immediately. You can have sex with them first, which is, you know, hot to be sure, but just make sure you keep an eye on them because they're probably thinking about how they're going to kill you too. Definitely. Yeah. To escape the darkest timeline. Of course. Uh, yeah, from there, we're going to talk about Night of the Demons, which is one of the two Scream Factory releases we're going to discuss on this episode. If you haven't seen Night of the Demons, you really should see Night of the Demons. It is one of those sort of hallmark, weird, 80s, uh, just campy oddities. And I love the hell out of this film. And it was so much fun to actually revisit. It's been a while since I've seen it, and it was so much fun to go back and revisit it uh, with this Blu-ray. Uh, I don't know. Did you get a chance to see this? I did. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is the first time I saw it, and I think if you didn't see it in the 80s, it's too late. I don't know. I didn't see it in the 80s. Well, I saw it shortly. You didn't see it when you were younger. Then it's too late. I, I, I literally – like the first time I saw this was right after I moved to Austin, and it just – it has everything – It. First of all, what you need to understand about the 80s, dear listeners, if you don't know this, is there was this weird sort of fusion for a while of horror and punk rock. And it comes to a head in movies like 
you know, Return of the Living Dead. That's and, the best one. And Demons and Night of the Demons. So you can really call this Return of the Night of the Living Evil Dead Demons. Something. Uh, yes. Something. Yeah, it's, you have to. Yeah, it's it's a combination of all those things. But yeah, there's a lot <laughs> about this movie that is just over-the-top silly and cheesy. But there's a lot about this movie that's a lot of fun. And I love the fact, too, that it's borrowing so heavily from Evil Dead, like just left and right. Like there's even not even borrowing. Let's face just it, straight up stealing. It's, it's stealing, and it's, and at least in my opinion, doing it so poorly that I was having trouble being amused by it. But continue. <laughs> Stop trying to sandbag me, damn it! Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't help it. I just, I really didn't enjoy this. But go ahead. I'm it's sorry. it's one of the. I mean, it's it's the standard setup. Like, there's a party. Where's the party? Well, it's at the weird girl's house. Man, we don't really hang out with her at all. Maybe we shouldn't go to this party. But it is a party, so we're going to go to this party. And wouldn't you know it, she's weird because she is obsessed with releasing demons from hell and causing the downfall of man. You know, like every goth girl in your school was? What? Well, I don't know if that's necessary. <laughs> no, it's true. not. That's why. No, I was going to say, like, no, no, no. What I mean is, like, I think she was just as clueless as everybody else was. No, she was, like, like there's a, a point in the movie where she's literally doing this dance to try and summon demons. And it's just like, okay, well... Apart from you writhing around in, in a very sheer skirt over lingerie, which is cool, uh, I, I don't really, like, what other outcome did you expect from Oddly, this? Oddly, she ends up becoming sort of the Freddy Krueger of the series for the two sequels to follow. Yeah. yeah. it's Yeah, she becomes possessed, and, uh, it, you know, there's... I don't really know how to sell this to you without without you seeing it, because it is just a series of sort of bizarre set pieces, and it, it was one of those things where the director talks about this. You know, this is a Scream Factory release, so you do get a lot of extras. And one of the things that really made me laugh is that the director here was doing this interview, and he was talking about, I kind of think this director is completely up his own ass. Like, I mean, no, no disrespect or anything, but this director is completely up his own ass. He doesn't have the strongest resume. No, he has this movie and another one we're going to talk about in just a second. But Kevin Tinney is his name. And he talks about how, oh, I wasn't even aware that I was breaking. When he talks about the mold at the time, he's talking about slasher movies, which were a big deal at the time. And he's like, yeah, I wasn't even aware that I was uh, breaking the rules because I didn't know that there were any rules to break. Because I was so, I wasn't a horror fan, so I wasn't even aware of the slasher craze. And I'm like, I'm going to stop you right there. Uh, First of all. Genius way to both sound humble and give yourself a compliment, but uh, which I believe is called a humble brag. And secondly, the fact that you don't even say the word Sam Raimi at any point during this interview is total bullshit because you have wholesale lifted shots from Evil Dead. But he's like, yeah, you know, it just came the idea of like – and it just came up like with this bullshit story about where a lot of the uh, inspiration came from. And I was just like, you're so full of shit. See, that's for me watching this. I felt like somebody saw Evil Dead and said, that movie's too weird. I don't think people really get it. Let's do it more like a normal slasher film and just steal the basic idea of Evil Dead and shoot yeah. the whole thing with every cliche that had ever been put out in horror. Oh, absolutely. This, this is the bubblegum version of Evil Dead, but I think in its own way it has its charms, and not the, not the least of which being Linnea Quigley, who shows up in every 80s horror film, including Return of the Living and Dead. And of course gets completely naked, because that's what she, that's, that's why what she you does. get Linnea Quigley. So. Yeah, because she'll do that. And there's some cool makeup stuff. There's, uh, there's a really cool effect at the end where there's like a demon in the sky that seems kind of out of place with the rest of the movie, but is also a lot of fun. And the ending of this film is such a weird, like, fuck you to old people who have a problem with Halloween. Such a weird sort of like, what does that have to do with anything? Nothing at all. It was like... Nothing at all. Presumably when you do a little tag on spaces, it'd be like, and the evil lives. And it's just sort of like a little... 
old people suck. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, we just wanted to like have one suffer horribly with something completely unrelated to everything else that's happened in this movie. Some of the cool things in this, like the score, is a lot of fun. It's it's very much that like heavy synth kind of beat you over the head with the chords that made a lot of the 80s movies so much fun. And also the animated sequence during the the opening titles I thought was really excellent. I actually really liked the opening titles of this, but that was the only thing that struck me other than Linnea Quigley, Quigley's quite impressive boobage. That's true. That's uh, true. She does have impressive they, they boobage. They are very nice. I don't know. It's just... Like I said, it's just so much of – there's nothing in here that happened that I didn't expect to happen except for that weird old people thing at the end. It's just such a ripoff of so many better movies. It just – like I, I admit, I had seen the remake of this first and thought that was truly awful. And people were like, no, 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 you need to see the original. And now that I have, I can say I dislike both of them. <laughs> I just, I, this just isn't my type of thing. I, I, I usually like – I usually love the – you know, everybody's possessed by demons. They run around screaming. But for me, this was just so poorly made. It was like, are you trying to make a comedy or a horror film? Or I'm not, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to feel about this, but I'm not having fun. I don't think it was that poorly made. I, I, I like I said, I think there's a lot about this movie to enjoy. And I like the fact that it's kind of found its place amongst the Scream Factory with another beautiful hand-painted cover. It's certainly a popular film in retrospect. Yeah. A lot of people loved this, and they treat it with a certain degree of reverence, uh, which is great. Like I said, I'm always happy with Chef Factory, even if it's something that I don't take to. I love the fact that you know there there are a lot of people who really enjoy the hell out of this movie, and there are some cool moments in it. Look at the pictures here. Is this great bit that I was like, why isn't more of the movie like this, where there's a broken mirror, and they film a whole shot with everyone sort of talking and like all were just reflected in the pieces of this broken mirror. It's like, wow, that's a really neat bit. But moments like that are too few and far between. But that being said, a lot of extra features, audio Tons. commentaries, multiple audio commentaries, uh, uh, over an hour making of Night of the Demons. Holy shit. Yeah, they uh, talk to everybody. An interview with Amelia Kincaid, who is, of course, the, the villainess who goes on to be in all three of these movies. I hear the second one is supposed to be pretty popular, too, not so much the third one. I'm pretty sure the second one was directed by Brian Trenchard Smith. Was it? Okay, yep. well, there you go. Uh, I'll look back at one of the actresses talking about her her personal photos that she took on the film, original trailers, TV spots, radio spots, promo reels, behind-the-scenes gallery, look at the special effects and makeup, uh, posters and storyboards. It's one of those, they they did not half-ass this release at all. No. So, love it or hate it or, or meh it, it's a completely solid release of the film in question. I think it's one of those perfect movies to grab a six-pack of beer and start just dumping candy into your bo big bowl of popcorn and eat it all at once and just... Have a good time with it. It's You know, the thing I think for me that's always a sticking point with horror is when everybody is such an asshole, I don't even have anybody to root for. This is one of those movies for me where I just hate every character so much that I was like, I just, oh my God, and the one character you're supposed to root for is such, so bland and so generic, like, you know, the good girl that I was like, I just, I'm having a hard time finding an entry point. Yeah, and it's funny, like, I don't even disagree with that, but for some reason, I didn't give a shit in this movie. It's funny, like, I usually have a problem with that, but maybe it's because the rest of it is so, like, it's I don't know. It's very pop and goofy and brightly colored, and it just constantly throws, like, I, I want to say Raimi-esque, it's not really Raimi-esque, it's sort of like this guy's what he thinks Raimi-esque is stuff at it that yeah. is fascinating in its way. I will hand you that. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> like I said, it's an oddity and it's one that I just kind of I like the ambition of it and I like I like the fact that it's it's just it balls out 
absurd from start to finish. And I don't know, on, on that level, it, it works for me. I'm mainly just sad that I didn't like it because I really wanted to. And I know so many other people do get so much pleasure out of this film. Uh, I wish I could have gotten that from it. I really and and a great, a great uh, selling point for me in this movie is it's got a one of the best dick little brothers of all 80s horror. He is pretty funny. There, the beginning of this. There's, there's this weird little, like, okay, so there's like this subtrend of a subtrend in 80s horror movies where you would have these really dickbag little brothers. Yeah. And they would never be in the movie for very long, but every time they're on screen, I'm just like, <laughs> dick brother, because it's the 80s. There's an awkward moment early on where he's like looking at his sister's boobs, like, nice boobies, sis. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck is going on in that, this movie? That is literally the point in the movie. I'm like, oh, okay. So, like, all bets are off entirely because little brother is like, nice boobage, sis. I'm like, what? Uh, speaking of Return of Living Dead, I'm pretty sure the actor who played the the black character here was the same guy who played the black character in Return of the Living Dead. See, I thought that too, but I don't think that's the case. No, his voice sounded very similar. He looked, he was uh, playing a totally different type of character. But. Yeah, because the guy in uh, Miguel Nunez Jr. is the guy in Return of the Living Dead. Uh, so this, yeah, see. I don't see him on the cast here. Yeah, but, I don't, look, I don't he's think he's a lot he like him. him. He's <laughs> really, Chris, really, come on. I'm just saying, mm. there are black people who are similar. I, you know what? I'm not even going to touch that. Some. <laughs> Damn it. I gotta be the bad guy. You again. just keep stepping on landmines today, you poor dude. Uh, uh, speaking of things that you shouldn't play with, like jokes like that, uh, Witchboard is the other film by this same director that was just released by Scream Factory. Witchboard is fucking bizarre. Uh, Witchboard exists in this other weird subgenre of horror in the 80s, which is everyone's afraid of Ouija boards. Yeah, I, I remember in the 80s when everyone was afraid of Ouija boards. Oh, I remember it well. <laughs> there was always people who were like, and it would happen. People would go like, do you want to do, do a Ouija board at this, at this party? It was like drugs. And people would be like, I don't know, man. And then we, like, even if it built up where people were like, yeah, we should do it at... Everybody would always wimp out at the last minute and never do it. You're like, no, no, no. That's probably about it. And there'd always be those friends who thought they were witches or whatever, you know, because they sold lots of, like, the the, the art of witchcraft books you could buy in the back of comic books. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who were like, no, Ouija boards are very dangerous. You can't. Here's the rules. of we There are no rules to Ouija boards. It's put out by fucking Parker Brothers, okay? <laughs> it was such a trend in the 80s to make movies about the dangers of the Ouija board, that there were actually, like, other countries doing knockoffs of that trend. Like, there's oh, yeah. a there's a really great, by great, I mean terrible, but delightful to watch, a uh, movie called Don't Panic from Mexico that is all about a kid who gets a Ouija board for his birthday and, like, the, the evil spirits he invites into his life by using it. There was even a movie called The Oracle, which made its own version of the Ouija board that has, like, it looks like a computer mouse, but it has, like, a, a quill pin and a hand, and it's, like, it moves around the board because they couldn't get the rights to it. They're just left and right through the 80s movies like this. And it all actually starts, I think, the uh, the genesis is The Exorcist. Because there's a scene in The Exorcist where she's playing with the Ouija board, and then obviously she gets possessed. And the Ouija boards, of course, you know, that concept goes all the way back to, like, ancient China. There are right. things like that. And yeah. in fact, the thing you're talking about is an automatic writing board, which it was a, you can, a real thing. They have those where it's like a Ouija board, except, you know, where everyone puts their hands on it and has a pen. It was just a way to make it automatic, right, to get the ghosts to talk through you. It seems a lot more practical than a Ouija board. Well, except say. that the ghosts kept drawing dicks and yeah. not actually writing anything. And, and later, when they have the, the uh, automatic writing uh, electric typewriters, it just kind of took all the mystique out of the thing. So, yeah. uh, you know, I will admit... Uh, there's that part of me, despite being a skeptic, that always, I mean, I've said before, I still find ghost movies my, among my favorite of horror movies, and I still find it very scary when I buy into it. 
And even though this movie is completely silly, I mean, it is so silly, it manages to be really creepy. There's some creepy moments, for sure. And I think one of the strengths here is uh, you're not really sure what's happening. As the story goes on, you've got uh, Tawny Catan, who's welcome in any movie at this period of time, because she was so incredibly hot. (laughs) It's funny. I knew she was, uh, I just knew her as sort of the, the chick on the car from the Whitesnake video. Right. But I didn't realize that she actually had a film career. And then this month, I have, or, you know, over the last couple months, I've watched Bachelor Party for the first time and this film, just like almost back to back. And it's like, oh, no, she was in movies. Well, basically, they're at a party. Uh, her ex is there, who she's trying to stay friends with, uh, who has a, who brings a witch board. It's like, oh, yes, I use it all the time. Even though he starts with this argument about how he's an atheist and why there's no God, and then continues to go on and go, oh, yeah, but there are ghosts everywhere. You're yeah, like, and it's also you know not clear. That's not what atheism is, right? Yeah, and it's also <laughs> not clear why he brings it, because no one, like, is is clamoring to, like, use it or anything. He's just right. there so he can go, that, I use that. And it's like, okay, you could have just told us what you use. So he, basically, he and Tony Catan in front of this whole party, contact his old spirit guide, who's supposed to be this, like, I think nine-year-old boy named David, uh, and Linda's, uh, Tony Katane's current boyfriend is, you know, kind of a drunk, and he's at that point kind of drunk, and apparently has an old, a very antagonistic relationship with her ex-boyfriend, uh, cause they used to be friends, and yada, 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 you know, depth, whatever. Soap opera. <laughs> uh, and he starts talking shit, and the ghost gets upset, and basically causes a little damage and takes off. Everyone thinks nothing else of it, except the dude leaves his witchboard at the house by accident, and Tony Katan says, ooh, I'm going to keep talk- talking to the spirit. Well, as we find out, that's a bad idea. Even I remember as a kid, if you're going to do Ouija, never Ouija by yourself. Terrible fucking There were idea. posters in our health class that said that. Right? Yeah. yeah, we had little warning videos, blood on the skyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the ghost starts becoming more and more forceful, as we find out he's, in fact, going to try and possess her. Now... The part of the question is, who is this ghost? Is it really David? How dangerous is it? And one of the ways this works is that as we start to, as they actually start to reveal what the ghost really is, they give you just enough, which is very little, to be like little pieces of information about this ghost, just flashes of images of him that through the whole movie, he actually it stays scary, becomes gradually more frightening as it goes along. And that's the biggest strength here, I thought, of this film, is that they pull that off pretty pretty well. On the other hand, the acting is almost across the board really bad, except for the guy, I think, except for the guy who's like the the the, the, the old, the ex-boyfriend uh, who's right. apparently a longtime soap opera actor. I remember well, I've seen him on some And stuff. that's funny because one of the things that really bothered me about this film is you do have these creepy little like vignettes but they're strung together with the most overwrought soap opery plot devices oh, and so it's just awful. like we used to be friends we used to be and they're like standing on a boat dock as the, why are you standing on a boat dock for this it's not even soap opera quality it's porn movie quality yeah yeah <laughs> like definitely. that type of like laughably awful acting uh, and you're just like, will you get back to the ghost stuff? <laughs> and the ghost, of course, this is still like an eighties film by a guy who wants to fuse everything with the slasher genre. So there's of course a series of violent deaths that happen along the way as the ghost, you know, disconnects wires. So things fall on people and the like, uh, and the police the whole time think that there's evidence that it is the, you know, the, the drunken boyfriend main character. I don't know how he becomes the hero in this film. I don't know. I kind of liked him. Uh, <laughs> like at the beginning of the movie there, he's dealing with what I considered to be one of the, you know, we talked before about the character who's uh, like in the eighties is a douche, his collar turned up. He's always blonde. 
that is how the other male protagonist of this movie struck me. So when our, our hero, Jim, is dealing with him in the beginning of the movie, I'm sympathizing with him. And then he goes into the kitchen and he grabs a bottle of Jack and he does this thing with his thumb where he just runs it across the side of the oh, cap yeah. and it flies off. And I was like, okay, that's fucking cool. See, my take on that was this. I was like... You fucking dick, man. Where, the, you know, somebody wants to put a cap on that bottle at some point. Now That's, they're going to be like, where the fuck is the cap to my bottle of Jack Daniels? Won't matter if you finish it. That's true. In this movie, he's definitely going to finish it. There but it's go. funny that his friends all admire him because he can do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, Really? Yeah, it's a silly thing, but I, I was still like, okay, that's kind of cool. <laughs> Everybody had their things like that. I still remember having to learn little lighter tricks when when I was in like a like late high school because that was like, you know, the cool guys did this. <laughs> oh, you wanted to be one of the cool guys. I succeeded briefly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then, when Reagan was in office. Right? Yeah, and then I decided it was more fun to sit on the couch, smoke pot, eat pizza, and watch movies. Yep. So that's how we all arrive here. Yep. This uh, is like our lives are the ultimate anti-smoking campaign, anti-drug campaign. I think I must have contacted a spirit on a Ouija board of a really fat, gross, slobby person so who possessed me. <laughs> it was a Ouija bong. It was a, yeah, exactly. Uh, this, of course, is being Shout Factory. It comes with lots of extras, a commentary with cast and crew, commentary with writer, director, producer, and the producers, uh, a making of which board, which is about 45 minutes long, another impressively length one made by Shout Factory, a vintage making of which board, uh, uh, six about seven minute epk type thing cast interviews uh which is a vintage cast interviews piece uh as well as some behind the scenes candid footage uh, uh on the set with the makers of which board uh most of the extra features with the exception of that 45 minute documentary are in fact vintage pieces which is fun in its way that they even did that most films like this then was were not putting together lots of bonus feature material so it's kind of an oddity but I mean, that's cool. There's outtakes and photo galleries and, like I said, a solid collection for a just okay little horror film. I would argue way more features than this film probably needs. Yeah. And it, of course. But I'm not faulting Shout This is another one that spawned a whole series of sequels and knockoffs. I mean, the Ouija thing, as you said, was really big and there's nothing really that special about this. But if you, you know, if you do find Ouija boards scary, this will get to you to some degree. And it's fun and it's in a, in a very dated, Let's have a few beers and laugh at which board sort of way. Yeah. And, and it's, it's funny, too, because, again, like, I don't mean to keep harping on this director, but during the interview, I kept thinking about, well, you know, there was that one scene where this happened and this. I was like, okay, that's creepy. I'll give you some credit. And he literally, in the interview, goes, yeah, I talked to some of my friends who were uh, who were mediums, and they told me the story about this happened once and this happened. I'm like, so all the best stuff in this movie is stuff you just stole other people's stories and put in the film. I was like, awesome. Oh, and by the way, the thing that... Keep, the thing that really keeps me from liking Witchboard a lot is the fucking medium character. Probably oh, the yeah. worst written, worst performed, like, this is what a punk is, written by somebody who doesn't understand punk. Yeah, they they thought that uh, uh, Cindy Lauper was, would make a good medium, but they couldn't get Cindy Lauper, so they got somebody who was trying to be Cindy Lauper. It's so irritating and just like... Oh my god, like this is really what you think uh the the punk society is. Like this is what you think punk culture is all about. And you just want us you want her to go ahead and be with her ancestors, quite frankly. Indeed. I want I wanted to like reach through the screen and not only smack her but smack the director for <laughs> thinking this was a good idea. The thing that made me laugh the most in this movie in the first two acts there's something like 20 scenes of somebody like looking at something and then another character scare accidentally scaring them and going, "Oh, oh yeah. you scared me." Like the jump scares are literally jump scares. Yeah. And you're like, "Wow." 
wow, that is as cheap and unimaginative as horror filmmaking can get. Indeed. And it's usually the same character doing it. It's <laughs> she like, gets more and more fuck? angry. It's like, just learn to look behind you once it's in a while. not even just her. He does it to his friend. He does it to another character. You're like, what is it? Is this guy a ninja? <laughs> <laughs> now, see, that would have been interesting. So we're going to move on from Witchboard to White Queen. I don't know. Alliteration. I don't know. Just was, go with it. That was I, Okay. <laughs> Just go with it. Okay. The White Queen is the latest attempt at, from the Stars Network to gre- create a bloody, boobsy period piece. This based on a successful trilogy of novels by Philippa Gregory that follow uh, the, the – I guess the series is called The Cousins War. They're originally called The White Queen, The Red Queen, and The Kingmaker's Daughter uh, that are based on the historical War of the Roses, which is this long battle between uh, these families, the House of York and House of Lancaster, for the throne as they back and forth – take the throne and the woman they get caught up in this as you can guess from the title this is very much from the woman's point of view mainly from the character in fact uh named the white queen played here very well and and god she's hot by rebecca ferguson uh her love interest is edward the fourth of england who when we come in has just overthrown the previous king henry who's now on the run uh is played by max irons and a lot of the first three or four episodes of this is pretty much them fucking <laughs> you know there's a lot of i admit pretty hot sex scenes between these two but that being said this is definitely a bodice ripper and never felt like much more than that no star fishing going on in this this is this is for the ladies more than anything else definitely and it certainly got enough good reviews and just watching it's got very high production value it's got a lot of very good actors in it janet mcteer who's a wonderful actress is in here uh, amongst a lot of other familiar faces, but it just didn't resonate with me for many reasons. One, even though this deviates from his, the actual history quite a bit, it's start trying so hard to keep to what happened at the same time that it's just kind of confusing and not as people say life is stranger than fiction. Sometimes it's more boring than fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and this is one of those, like, you're not really following the some of the things that make this sort of fiction sometimes very interesting and fun to read. It's just like, well, and then here's what happened next. And here's what happened next. Okay. Just, I, (laughs) I can't even say it's bad. It's not bad. It's just not my thing. The most amusing thing I thought about this is the main writer of this show called the white Queen's name was, and I kid you not, Emma Frost. (laughs) I mean, that's pretty fucking funny. (laughs) That's like a terrible joke we would write. I know. I was like, that can't be right. No, that's absolutely right. I was like, what? I I only got five episodes into this 10 episode series and finally went, I can't, I've literally lost track of who is kinging and for what reason and what's going on and who's fucking who. I just kind of just went, okay, I just, I admit, I just don't care that much. And I usually am the first to love these sort of historical, dramatic, you know, lots of sex and people cutting people in half with broadsword stuff. This ain't no Game of Thrones, my friends. <laughs> yes, this, this historically based Game of Thrones. Well, you know what I mean. Like, yeah, no, I know that sort mean. of thing. Uh, like I love like uh, the, the Follett adaptations, the Pillars of the Earth and the sequel. Those are so good, but maybe it's because they're so much more self-contained. This just feels like it's a like it combines the three books that each one initially focused on one woman, really, uh, and what you know as each one basically became queen. And this kind of tries to re-sort it all so it's mainly just about the one, and it just feels kind of awkward and unbalanced. I can't say I enjoyed it, but if 
if you know, if you're a chick and you love this kind of things and you want to see, uh, Max Irons get naked and his close-ups of his butt a lot, this is your thing. Maybe I do, Chris. Don't you be judging me for that. You're not a chick. What? Nothing? Who? <laughs> anyway. It's like, uh, I have a vagina. It's in a jar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lots of extra features on this, though. So, I mean, like, if you like this series, which may or may not be the only season of it, like, it was only designed to be one season, but apparently did well enough that now they're, they're trying to negotiate for a second season. Uh, but there's, like I said, lots of bonus feature stuff on here. So if you did like it, you'll be satisfied with the Blu-ray release. Right on. Well, from there, we're going to head into the jungle with Jungle Book Diamond Edition from Disney. I did not get this one. Oh, my goodness. So the Jungle Book, I mean, obviously, you guys are aware by now that Disney's been releasing a lot of its classic stuff in, in these Diamond Edition uh, super souped-up Blu-rays. Two varying degrees of reception from the uh, from the high-def critics. And... and I actually haven't had a lot of the problems that some of the like, and maybe it's just because I'm not as eagle-eyed for some of the the more finite details of high definition. But uh, I have to say, this one I really, really, really liked, and I liked the fact that. Uh, so any, yeah, anyway, the Jungle Book. If you're not familiar with it, I don't know why. Why are you familiar with the Jungle Book? You should be familiar with the Jungle Book by now. Come Something's on. wrong with you if you're not familiar with the Jungle Book. By that now. being said, if you're familiar with the actual book, Jungle Book, then you're probably not familiar with the cartoon because Walt decided that he did not want to deal with the quote unquote heavy stuff from the book and sort of, in fact, some of the things they talk about in the special features here is he told his animators and his uh, story writers, have you guys read the jungle book? And they all went, no. And he goes, good, don't, I'm going to tell you the story as I see it. And basically they just went from there um, because it and, and sounds then, like Walt Disney. <laughs> it, it does a little bit. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, if you look back at the, at the lineage of like Hans Christian Anderson and the Grimm's brothers fairy tales that were adapted into Disney films, the real versions of those stories are genuine or are generally way darker than the Disney versions. I mean, Cinderella's like glass cutting into her foot every time she took a step. Like, what the fuck is that? That's messed up. Anyway, <laughs> Jungle Book. I like I, the dark versions. <laughs> of course you do. The, the Jungle Book is actually one that I watched a lot as a kid. And it struck me how much when after not seeing it for probably, you know, 15 years, maybe even longer, since the last time I've seen this movie, I was remembering lines. I was remembering like like little things as the movie was going. I was like, I don't really remember. And then something would come up, and I would remember the line of dialogue before it happened. So this is one I watched a lot as a kid, and I really like the way with this Diamond Edition they've cleaned up just enough. They have cleaned up and smoothed out some things, but not everything. We still have heavy pencil lines, which is always something I like to see in the classic Disney stuff because it reminds me that there was a time when these things were hand drawn. Um, so I like seeing the heavy pencil lines. The color usage in this film, maybe even more so than most Disney films, is so vibrant and alive because, I mean, you're dealing with uh setting of an Indian jungle and very, like, almost like pastel coloring. And I really like the way that they they heighten uh the contrast here so you can really see those colors pop. And I thought that I thought that was brilliant. And yeah, it's it's one of those the songs in it are really good, and it's yeah, also this had great songs. Yeah, you know the the King Louis song. Well, he like you. Yeah, it's Louis <laughs> Prima. Ooh, ooh. That's why he's called King Louis because they got fucking Louis Prima, who at the who time, awesome. who at the time was the, quote, called the King of Swing. He was huge. I'm just a gigolo anywhere I go. That's Lee Primo, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure that's Lee that's Primo. David Lee Prima. Um, no, 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 that was a remake. You know, <laughs> yes, you know do that. know that, right? Yes, I'm aware. Okay, of just that. making sure. I was like, <laughs> did we just encounter? A... <laughs> no, I actually, I knew, I knew Louis Prima from things that were more like on the Godfather soundtrack and some of the, you know, because he was 
uh, a lot of his swing music ended up like uh, Angelina, for example, ended up, you know, in, in Scorsese movies, in, in The Godfather. Um, but anyway, so that was actually another interesting thing about this movie that I didn't realize is this was the first time that Walt Disney sort of sought out, quote unquote, celebrity voices for his characters. I mean, he, these are people that had kind of developed as their own stars prior to being in the film. And Disney used them specifically because of their of their of their star talent and, and the pull that they had sort of as celebrities. Um, so that was really cool. I didn't I didn't know that about. But it does feature one of my absolute favorites. Now the voice of Baloo the Bear. Uh, you'll probably it's Phil Harris, and you'll probably recognize it because he also turns up in Robin Hood. He turns up in uh, the Aristocats. He's, he's became one of Disney's like go to guys. Um, yeah, you'll you hear his voice and go, I know that voice. Yeah, because he was in fucking everything. Absolutely, and yeah, I mean just uh, the the voice talent across the board: Sebastian Cabot, George Sanders, Sterling Holloway. All of these guys have remarkable, distinctive voices that really bring these characters to life in a way that, you know, hadn't – I don't know. The, the Disney movies prior to this, I don't really notice that as much. I don't notice the characters really being brought to life by the voice acting. But in The Jungle Book is where it really starts to be like, wow, that that's really remarkable and becomes a feature of Disney films from that point forward. You know, sometimes, sometimes to a fault later on. Oh well, no, that's true. Where it becomes like more about whose name can we put on the poster than whether or not they're the right person to do the voice or right. the best person to do the voice. But this is an example of like the best of both worlds for the time, and certainly like these voices in here. Once I haven't seen this movie in probably twenty years, and yet I can hear all these characters' voices in my head. Like Cher Khan, George Sanders, who was just a great actor anyway, and is such like, a such dick a, villain. Like yes, <laughs> he's one of the best Disney villains. But oh he's but like the way he plays the. villain villain isn't like mustache twirling evil he's just like a snide dick bag who could care less about your problems yeah he's just he's just really selfish ultimately and and very manipulative which makes him one of the more interesting villains yeah he's he's way more like jeremy iron scar in the lion king where he's just like oh fuck you i have other things to do it's just <laughs> like i i, I love i absolutely love uh shere khan as as a disney villain in general yeah I mean, it's just it's a beautiful film the music is terrific this edition really uh, brings to life a lot of the things you like about it without glossing it over, without polishing it too much to the point where it looks fake. They don't use they don't use a shit ton of digital noise reduction. The moments they do use it, it's noticeable. Don't get me wrong, but it is it is used very sparingly just to smooth out a few of the rough edges. And this edition is loaded with special features. I mean, the the version that came out before the the DVD that came out before had a lot of cool special features on it, including. Uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, including the alternate ending to the film. Yeah, that's on this too. Yeah, and they brought that back. But they've also talked about this excised character from the movie Rocky the Rhino and about how he, how he was going to play in and how he was going to like his relationship with the Vulture characters and how that was going to work, which was really interesting. Did they ever say who was going to be voicing him? Yeah, it was a guy who... Um, Oh my god. He, he was a guy who was popular on a TV. He was like a... On one of those variety shows, he was like a side character that would turn up every once in a while. And he was known for playing a sort of dimwitted uh, adult kind of side character on this variety show. I'm, I'm forgetting the exact details, but so he had a voice very much like this. And it was just like, okay, that's, that's odd. Uh, but it, apparently what happened was as they were developing the character, Disney kept hearing this guy's voice over and over again, because they were doing all these animation tests and got, fed up with it like it, it started to grate on him so much that he just kind of got rid of the character uh, wow. which it's it's an interesting why story re, why not recast well i don't know it's 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 a very bizarre story now the other 
the other kind of legend behind this film is it's the last movie that Disney oversaw personally. Oh, I didn't know that. He died before this movie was released. He died, in fact, before they had even a rough cut. Like, they were doing a lot of the animations and a lot of the music. He still had the, the Sherman Brothers working on the music. But um, this is the last movie that he ever oversaw. So, And it became a big deal because when he passed away, they weren't sure whether or not Disney animation was going to survive. And they talk about the fact that if this movie had tanked, if this had not been a success, it could have meant the end of Disney Studios. I mean, that their history that we're living right now could have been entirely different. Like, the owner of Marvel, the owner of Star Wars could have been somebody else or it could have been – there's just so much that could have changed based on this one film. The success of this one movie really kind of shapes entertainment history for the next several decades without even – trying to without even recognizing that it would be that important like yeah very rarely do people know how important right things like this are while they're making them yeah and all i mean all these guys were thinking is am i gonna have a job tomorrow <laughs> like uh but yeah i love the jungle book i think it's one of disney's best and i'm so glad to see this version put out with all of these great there's a great special feature in here where uh the remaining sherman brother is talking to the head writer on this film as well as uh, Disney's daughter, who has since that interview passed away, unfortunately, and just talking about the production. And then it turns into this sort of really moving remembrance of Disney himself. And it's, hmm. there's so many great features on this. And then they have some of the standard stuff that you would expect to see. Like they have their karaoke version, which in this they call Barryoke because Baloo the Bear, and we like puns. Uh, <laughs> the only feature on here that I feel is really like woefully uh, unnecessary is there's one of these – it had to have been made like – Three or four years ago for the Disney Channel, it was like the special where these two kids go and they work at Animal Kingdom. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, just because some of the animals featured in this movie are... Because they've got at... to sell people and going to Disneyland. Yeah. It comes down to. It was just... It was shitty. I was like, this has nothing to do with the Jungle almost Book. Almost all of them have something that relate... These days, almost all these re-releases have something that's just there to make you go, and it's at Disneyland or World. Yeah. It's just... It's... <laughs> For me, I was like, That's what, you know, you could skip that entirely. Just don't watch it. But there's a lot of great stuff on this release. It looks great. And it's one of Disney's best. And unfortunately, it was the last one he oversaw himself. But it, it makes the movie just, I think, ten times more special. And one you should definitely pick up. Right on. In fact, this is going to be my pick of the week. Wow. Just for all of the special features and for how good it looks and for how great this movie is. It's Yeah, it's my pick of the week. Mine would be Million Dollar Baby, but I'm going to give this one for you because uh, this is probably the better re-release. There you go. Yeah. Well, moving on from there, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about a couple documentaries here. The first being Cutie and the Boxer. And one of this is one of the films uh, that this will be one of the few years I've seen most of the documentaries that are up for best documentary at the Oscar. <laughs> I don't always I'm not always there, but for whatever reason this year I have I've been on top of it, and this is uh, an Odd subject if there ever was one. It's about a, uh, the 40 year old marriage of two artists who are both very strange in what they do, especially the man, Ushio Shinohara. Apparently, during like, you know, the days of the factory in New York and, you know, the, the, the new wave of art that was going on there, pop art, he was looked to be like one of those, like, oh my God, what this guy's doing is amazing. He was making these crazy cardboard sculptures that he'd mold and paint. And he did a form of art where he would put on boxing gloves with like big foam pieces soaked in paint. And then his pieces were just him. Like he was like pretty impressive looking boxer. And he'd just spend two minutes boxing this canvas and then it was done and he'd sell it, <laughs> which people were like, oh, this is amazing. Cause you know how people are with that stuff. They're like, okay. That's art scene is weird. People bought Pollocks. I don't always get it. 
I yeah. don't always get it. <laughs> and I don't, I don't get this guy either. But <laughs> ultimately this movie is, and the woman does more cartoonish type of stuff about her own life. And I actually liked her style. I kept wanting to go, maybe you should consider writing, doing graphic novels. I'm just saying, because that seems more suited to what you're doing and rather than selling canvases, but whatever. At this point now, uh, he's 80, she's about 60 something. Uh, and through this movie and they're struggling, they're, they're still barely getting by. Uh, he's still doing boxing paintings and doing these strange, really strange sculptures. And she's just barely putting up with them most times because he really is kind of obnoxious. But I, I think it's really about, like, you know, love and romance more than it's about art, even. I say I think because <laughs> I didn't really completely gel with this film. I was, like, kind of bored, quite frankly. I, For one thing, I just, I, I can't always just buy into, like, modern art stuff. There's a lot of it I like. There's a lot of it I go, I don't get it. This guy's stuff falls under firmly for me. I don't get it. And so I guess I had a hard time being finding it appealing on that way, even though that's that's inherent to the story is that I think a lot of people didn't get it and his stuff just wasn't very salable. So here he is still struggling all these years later. But as it goes along through watching her cartoons, it sort of flashes us back to earlier in their lives, how they first met, how they ended up getting together, what was going on in that early art scene when it looked like they were going to be famous as hell, how that never worked up and how they ended up where they were now, just barely getting by. And that's interesting to a certain extent, but I don't know. I mean, I guess if I felt more connection to either one of these people, I, I might've been more interested. It just kind of, it feels more like it meandered than anything else, but it's beautifully shot. No question. And I can see why the Academy thought this was great. I'm just saying this is like to call this a dark horse for best, uh, best uh, documentary when it's up against stuff like 20 years feet from stardom and the act of killing is, is not putting it strongly enough that this is not going to win. Yeah, it's it's the darkest of dark horses. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I just didn't really care for it, but I can see why a lot of people did. So uh, I think it's if you like if you like modern art type things, if you like sort of like uh, very slice of life type documentaries, this might be very well be your thing. There's certainly nothing wrong with it. It's just not my thing. Gotcha. Well, moving on from there, the other documentary we're going to talk about, which one I actually did like a lot, is. Pussy Riots, a uh, a punk prayer, which is, of course, about the band, the Russian uh, all-girl punk band Pussy Riot, and the landmark fr- sort of freedom of speech case that came out of uh, of what happened with them. Basically, Pussy Riot. Um, just say it a couple more times. Just Pussy Riot, Pussy Riot. Pussy. I love the name. I love the name <laughs> of this band. Um, what I find interesting about this documentary right out of the gate is you have so many punk bands who are, you know, who make great music, but... Their stance on how they're actually bucking the system and being rebellious is like you're wearing leather jackets and you have a mohawk. That's awesome, but I'm not sure it's affecting that much social change. Pussy Riot, on the other hand, is like, no, we're going to put on masks and we're going to go to a cathedral, uh, an Orthodox Russian Christian cathedral, because we feel that the problem with this country right now is that there is too much uh, patriarchy. There's too much like male-dominated government and there is a huge – like 
bedfellow relationship between religion and politics, which is actually That's in this country too. But true, yeah. um, so what they were, they were trying to make a statement, you know, so they went there and they, cause that's what they do is they're sort of like the Banksy of punk bands. They just show up places and, and do these, these stunts. And um, so they showed up in this cathedral and they were, and this was like the third or fourth performance they'd done sort of like this, where they would just show up and sort of do these, these viral performances. And uh, they showed up and three of the members were arrested and it became a big deal because they were, you know, looking at a three to five year sentence for what was really not, a, not, not necessarily that it wasn't a crime, but wasn't a, a federal offense and wasn't a, uh, a felony the way that it was kind of being the, – the, what they were being accused of is like, well, you are undermining religion and you offended people's religion. And they were like – Ironic that this happens in Russia. But. Yeah, and it's like, I'm sorry. Hold on. So our, the thing that you're going to lock us away for five years for is that we offended Christians. That's not a law. Like they were basically not really charged with anything other than – we don't like what you're saying. Yeah, we don't like your message. Hooliganism motivated by religious hatred, which is the most vague way of saying, is that actually, a, is there a law that says that? And there wasn't. They found some like this weird code thing that kind of sounded like it, but wasn't it at all. And they were just like, you can't lock us up for something that's not even a crime on the books. Like, if you want to find us for trespassing, fine, but you can't lock us away for something that's not a felony. It's not even in the law books. And that's exactly what they tried to do. And that's the thing, though, is that ultimately this is like for what they were trying to achieve to get out there. This is probably the best thing that could have happened for their message. Oh, Russia they, fucked up big time. Putin it, fucked up big time. Did, you know, it's like they took out an ad on the cover of Rolling Stone yeah. to the world saying, hey, Russia's kind of fucking up right now with this whole religious political crossover thing. If they had just let Pussy Riot go with a slap on the wrist, yeah. nobody, this story would – there wouldn't be – nobody would be talking the about it. The only reason anybody would be interested is people who like punk music and think the name Pussy Riot is tit titillating. Yeah. Yeah. P Pussy Riot is titillating. Yeah. Um, but instead, they overreacted. They totally showed their their true face, which is, oh, yeah, we're still the Soviet Union. Under Putin, this is still the Soviet Union. We can lie about being a democratic country all we want. But, I mean, look at all the shit that happened with the Sochi Olympics and sit there with a straight face and tell me Russia's a democratic country. It's a little messed up. It's so. fucked up. And it's fucked up because it's still in Putin's control. That's entirely the, the, the whole reason that they have returned to this, like, neo-Soviet Union. And because they overreacted, they showed the whole world how oppressive Russia still is. And you had, like, all of these big musical groups. Uh, you had, like, Madonna in the middle of a concert, like, Free Pussy Riot and, like, wearing their name. And, and that was happening all over with all of these acts that are way more relevant than Madonna doing that. Madonna will be on any, like – thing that has the word pussy involved in well it and she'll point. also jump on any political bandwagon i yeah. get that about her but like you had all of these musical groups like standing up like there was a, a worldwide just outrage like you have to free this band and even the united states got involved like the united states was like leaning on russia like you know this is a huge human rights issue that you have totally dropped the ball on amnesty international is getting involved and what you know i won't say what ends up happening but if you've been you know abreast of current events you know, very current events. In fact, as of December, then you'll probably know how this ends. But I have to say, I was riveted by this. And I was riveted because it made me so fucking angry that it was like, I, you know, I understand that I don't live in Russia. I don't, I, you know, it's not. I'm that, glad you understand that. <laughs> I don't live in Russia. It's not my politics, it, you know, whatever. And, and there's a whole thing about America kind of trying to police the world. And I understand that that shouldn't be our role. But it does just infuriate me when people's human rights are violated like this. It's like, again, this is a situation where there probably should have been some punishment because there was trespassing, whatever. 
it's a, but it's such a minor thing. It's such a minor infraction. And to lock somebody up because basically you don't like what they're saying is a really scary thing to me. And especially with everything that came out recently about the NSA and we're all being watched. And it's like, I don't, I don't like how close I feel like our two countries are in terms of their policies in that regard. And so it, Brian will not be on digital noise next week or ever again, as he will be taking up cell space somewhere deep underground. Yep. Wait, Guantanamo is still open and Brian is gone forever. Oh, shit. Guantanamo. That's probably a country club compared to some of the places. Yeah. We got. I'd be shipped to a fucking gulag. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's one of those things that I feel like I, I got so angry about it because it started to dawn on me that a lot of the things that, the world is criticizing Russia for, we're not that far away from. I mean, we're not locking up, uh, you know, homosexuals in this country, but we're sure as shit not giving them any rights. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's an inch by inch. Yeah, it's a stone's throw between, you know, what's going on in Russia and what's currently going on in the States. And I feel like that kind of subconsciously is what was making me so angry about this case. And well, the difference is we have a much better marketing department for our country. Bingo. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, this is a really fascinating documentary and one that you really get to know these girls and you kind of understand that what they're doing is they're not, they're not hateful about their message as, as much as their lyrics are things like kill all the misogynists. They're not hateful. They really are just trying to change the bullshit that's going on in Russia. And they have, they've run to the end of their rope and any other means to do it. And, you know, by Russia's own incompetence in dealing with this case, they've, you know, they've kind of succeeded in casting a spotlight on all of the injustices under, under Putin. Someone would have looked at, like, the punk revolution in America and, like, how badly it went early on when the police decided to start treating, you know, punks and punk shows as threats. And things just got worse, more heated until somebody came along and said, look, just fuck them. Just ignore it. And sure enough... Punk became completely bought by by the mainstream and taken over, and then there was Green Day. Yep. So I just <laughs> – not that I have a problem with Green Day in and of itself, but you know what I'm saying. It's like there's no punk edge left anymore in America, yeah. you know, for that very reason. that When you ignore it, it goes away, and, and somebody was not listening to that. Yeah. <laughs> they gave them the power they sought, quite frankly, which ends up – I think is a good thing. It's going to make – Russia be forced to address some of these issues to be sure. I mean, Pussy Riot got what they, you know, thought they got the hardest way possible, but they, they have achieved their goals. Yeah. I love the massive ovaries on these, on these women. Like even after, <laughs> even after, you know, you, you have one of them who, who is released, she stages a concert on top of the prison where the other two are kept. That's pretty awesome. Are you fu- like, what? Like, that is incredible to me. Like, somebody doing that in this country would be, like, shocking and admirable. But you do that in Russia where they could probably just shoot you in the head for doing that crap? Talk about your movies that would be good to see uh, uh, Hillary Swank come back and do. Yeah, the Pussy Riot movie. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so, saying. highly recommend this. If you're a fan of punk rock, if you're a fan of the way that art can influence policy, and if you're a fan of people who are just, like, just true blue brave to the core, this is a movie you definitely need to check out. Fair enough. Well, moving on from there, we're going to talk about a case of you. I can usually only drink about a six pack of you, Chris. Really, you then... only take a, really because it's not till you get to the little like cloudy bar part at the bottom that it yeah. really gets good. You're mostly backwash after a while. <laughs> uh, this is another Justin Long, more or less direct to DVD Blu-ray. Man, I get like one last week and one this week. Come on, Justin Long, somebody give him a shot. Come on, Man, I really like Justin Long, Me and too. I wish that like I don't know. I, I mean, I wish this... Hollywood felt the same. For this one, he's producing it, and he wrote – this is the first script he wrote with his brother uh, and with Keir O'Donnell, who's a, who has a small role in the film. And 
it becomes very clear very shortly into it that Justin Long is a huge fan of Woody Allen in like the 70s and 80s. And he's completely incapable of writing stuff that's even mildly as good as Woody Allen does. This is such a major misstep in concept. I mean, maybe Allen could have made these characters work, but Justin Long absolutely doesn't. The idea here is he's a writer who writes adaptations of really terrible Hollywood vampire movies, basically straight novelizations. And he's struck by his own schmuckiness in that sense. Like he wants to write a real thing and he ends up doing this, starting to write a real thing finally by stalking ever Evan Rachel Wood in the most gratuitous stalking that no one ever refers to as stalking sequences, which is to say the entire movie I've ever seen. I mean, He's, she works at the local coffee bar. He keeps trying to meet her, finds out a tiny bit of information to a very minor role with, for Peter Dinklage as a gay barista. I know you kind of want to see it just for that, but it's it's not enough. So Yeah, uh, I know say, I would. I would watch it. Don't that. let that me? sway you because <laughs> really he decides, OK, well, I found her Facebook page and now I'm going to just read all her entries and write down anything that she likes and then go and study all these things. I'm going to find this album and listen to it obsessively until I know it by heart. I'm going to learn how to play the guitar. I'm going to take judo classes. I'm going to find out where she is at all times of day and night. You're a fucking creepy stalker. stalker. This is not romantic. And the film tries to take the angle like, okay, we know this is not a normal way of being. That was a bad call. It's just that he's not good at this. No, he's a fucking creepy stalker. He, this is not, it's not adorable. It really isn't. Especially when it comes to the point, and I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil this, Reverend Rachel Wood with a big thing like, oh God, I did this. I can't believe it. And she's like, oh, I know. Like, like that didn't shock her or bother her in the slightest oh. that she knew. Wow. This is such a major misstep, and it it keeps trying to play, like, meet cute sequences with them. And the thing is, she's no Annie Hall. I think she's a fine actress, but the writing for her, she's just a generic, cute, likable girl. There's nothing about her that really stands out. Justin Long is, like I said, almost everything he does is intensely creepy, but the movie just sashays through it as if, isn't it adorable how nerdy he is? No, it's not nerdy. It's not nerdy cute. It's nerdy <laughs> call the police. <laughs> Uh, Sam Rockwell has a role that makes you mad that he even has Justin Long's is on Justin Long's uh, speed dial uh, as like a guy who, who who takes who gives him guitar lessons and he just has like just like in Allen films there's always these like tertiary characters that are very strongly written and very mm. exaggerated but they're not in the film a lot he and Brendan Fraser and Vince Vaughn and Peter Dinklage they're all playing characters like this that aren't in it much highly exaggerated they, those characters can work in Woody Allen films they're nice excuses for set pieces here it's just really poor comedy writing i hated this movie wow like hated it like was mad watching it like going such a great cast as a topic that might have worked if you had found a way to take the to be honest with your audience but it just man i hope no one sees this and thinks that this is appropriate Oh, you just opened up a case of whoop-ass on a case of you. Dude, this movie sucks. Do not <laughs> oh, watch this movie. It is terrible. And like I said, I, I like everybody involved with this movie, but maybe Justin Long just should wait for a while longer before he tries to write something, or try not to channel Woody Allen when you don't know how to. The commercials are going to be, I'm a Justin Long, and I'm an actual screenwriter. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to go ahead and skip that one. Yes, and... please do. <laughs> case of boo. <laughs> oh, that was such a bad one. Uh, so we're going to end the show, our last title, which is also going to be our... <gasps> Give away! 
appropriately named movie for the end of the show. Right, because it's Ender's Game. See what you did there. I well, I usually I actually just put it at the end because we we're going to talk about it and give it away. But okay. yes, no, it was because of ending an Ender's Game. Sure, totally. you were very clever. <laughs> Ender's Game, as you know, is the big screen adaptation of Orson Scott Card's. Actually, like pretty. I didn't realize how popular this book was. Oh yeah. Until they started talking about making the movie, and of course, Orson Scott Card's personal beliefs notwithstanding. I actually did really enjoy the book, and I haven't read it in a long time. It's a great sci-fi book. I, I skimmed it. I kind of uh, skimmed it again uh, because, you know, I mentioned earlier that there was another movie filming in New Orleans at the same time Escape Plan. It was this one, and when I knew I was going to be going, I was like, oh, well, I need to. I didn't get time to completely read it, but I kind of skimmed myself through, and I was like, okay, I remember this. This is good stuff. Uh, so I was really looking forward to uh, what they ended up doing because there was a lot – in the production of this film that was really impressive, like the things that they were trying to do in order to be very respectful to the material and really just create a film that that both, you know, younger audiences and adults could see and really get something from. I was like, you know what? There's hope here. There is absolutely hope here. And I think it helps a lot. You've got Asa Butterfield yes. coming in playing the role of Ender Wiggin here, who is a wonderful actor uh, who was in Martin Scorsese's uh, Hugo. Hugo. Thank you, because mm-hmm. you know I never can remember the name of that movie for some reason. <laughs> there Hugo again, and not remembering the name. Surprisingly, Gavin Hood, who directed uh, the first Wolverine, X-Men Origins Wolverine, did this. So I was like, well, this is doomed from the start. But... I think that was a problem with too many cooks, too many producers, because that was one of the worst pieces of shit I've ever seen. And Ender's Game is a pretty fucking solid sci-fi action fun movie. Does it achieve all the psychological and philosophical depth of the original novel? No, it does. Decidedly does not. But it does not do such a bad job of it either, especially when it gets to the last 20 minutes or so, which feels more like a and now a look at the next Ender's Game movie than yeah. it does like the end yeah. of a movie. But it's This is really a science fiction classic, the book. I mean, no question. And it's a more than acceptable, quite enjoyable adaptation of it overall, with a terrific cast, including Harrison Ford as sort of the main trainer guy of these group of people, Ender being this little kid who's brought on to this force of very young children who are being trained to from a distance using technological skills basically fight against alien hordes that may or may not be coming soon yeah i mean of if you're not familiar if you're not familiar with the story basically it takes place in a future in which at one point in earth's history we were attacked by an alien race called the formics and through heroism of a, of a few we were able to beat them so we've developed this sort of uh, paranoia about the chance of them coming back and how we're going to be prepared and we are not going to let the things that happened during the Formic invasion happen again. And one of the things, the, one of the ways that we do that is we actually are starting to train children. I mean, it's, it's a very Spartan culture. I mean, you have children who are taken from a very young age and taught to, taught military strategies, taught battle tactics. I mean, it's. If you've ever played on Xbox Live against a 10 year old, on a FPS, you'll know that they're naturally gifted at killing people. Indeed. And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of horrifying. And this is sort of, I, I when was the book actually written? Do you remember? It was, uh, sometime in the seventies, I want to say. I'm checking right now. Well, what's funny about 1985, that, I'm sorry. 1985. So, I mean, just as video games are starting to become, you know, popular and become like a household thing. So, I mean, there is sort of that, 
underlying thing to it that is made even more relevant as games. It's one of those things that you think about a book that was written, you know, in the 80s, and it's like, okay, well, technology has actually advanced a lot since then, so are the or is the technology in the book kind of hokey? And it's like, actually, with Ender's Game, not really. No. Because one thing is, like, if you if you think about that whole principle of, like, kids in video games and the parallel drawn there – Video games have gotten more sophisticated, which makes the argument even stronger. Yeah. And not only that, but there is a technology described in the book that is essentially the iPad. Yeah, this whole thing actually seems very prescient. Yes. Quite frankly, and therefore really works today. Um, and the message, as much as like, it, this seems like a very military, well, it is a militaristic film. It's just not a pro-militaristic film. Right. Ultimately, this movie is about the mistake, the we can make with patriotism and militarism of jumping the gun too fast and not trying to understand our enemy first. Yeah. Uh, it's, I really enjoyed this and I know it got mixed reviews. I mean, it's on the higher side of popularity, but still some people genuinely didn't like it. I can't figure out why. I can't I say I didn't like terrific. it. I can't say I didn't like it. I just felt a little cold to it. Like it did. There was, I guess there was a point that I was I was kind of expecting to be pulled into this world, and for me, it just felt a little tectonic. It felt like these big plot devices and these really important set pieces were kind of drifting from one to the next, and I didn't I didn't feel like it was like so it was sort of the Pangea of science yeah, fiction films, yeah, it was originally, like there, and then it drifted apart to yeah, where we are. Yeah, it was like there were things that should have <laughs> I should have felt were more motivated that just felt like they happened because that's when they had to happen based mm. on the story. So it's not that I dislike the movie necessarily; it's just that. It didn't pull me into the world as much as I was really hoping that it would. And there are points because it's trying to cover a lot of territory. Sure it is. And to pull off quite a trick on its audience ultimately with its plot twist that most people knew ahead of time going into it. There are points that the the motions of the plot do seem a little mechanical, but nothing ever seems fake. No, no, I wouldn't say fake. Exactly. And it's helped, like I said, solid cast. Ben Kingsley has a nice and small role in here that is, I think, a much bigger role if they ever do a sequel. Haley, Haley Steinfeld and Abigail Breslin play really charismatic and interesting kids with their relationship with Ender in here, Viola Davis. I mean, there's a lot of good people in this movie, and I think it works a lot more than it didn't. Now, just to address this, because somebody is going to say something about the controversy and fuck Orson Scott Card and anything he, he, I don't like his opinions. Well, first off, this was written in 1985 before the gay marriage thing was even a topic. And this has nothing. There's not anything vaguely resembling a subtext in any way here to gay marriage or anything no. that you would find controversial about his opinion. In fact, Orson Scott Card, as much as I disagree with a lot of his opinions about stuff, I actually was pretty impressed with what he said to Entertainment Weekly. He said, Ender's Game is set more than a century in the future and has nothing to do with political issues that did not exist when the book was written in 1984. With the recent Supreme Court ruling, the gay marriage issue becomes moot. The full faith and credit clause of the Constitution will, sooner or later, give legal force in every state to ever, any marriage contract recognized by any other state. Now it'll be interesting to see whether the victorious proponents of gay marriage will show tolerance towards those who disagreed with them when the issue was still in dispute. And to be honest, I can't help but agree with that. It's like, he is he was one of the first people to go, okay, we lost. The issue is over. I feel this way, but I'm not going to keep banging the drum about it. You know, We lost. You guys won. That's fine. We move on from here. Now are you going to keep treating me like I'm a fucking villain because I disagreed with you about this philosophical issue. It's similar to if you, you know, the two-party system we have in our politics. It's like if you lose the election, are you going to, as we've actually seen a lot in the last eight years, basically throw tantrums and be petulant and not allow anything to be done as your sort of revenge against not your party not winning? 
or are you actually going to work together for the good of the country? Which is any president worth his salt during his – like when he actually wins the election – Always says in his speech, I hope we can now work together. Of course. But that shit just doesn't happen. And I kind of feel that's a similar situation to what Orson Scott Card is talking about. It's like, okay, I had my beliefs. Obviously, they weren't the beliefs of, of the of the masses, of the majority. So now that that's over, you know, can we still coexist having different beliefs? Or is it one of those things that I have to – I have to subscribe to your thinking, which take the issue out of this entirely. Take gay marriage out of this entirely. The fact that you would, you know, if you had a disagreement with somebody and they ended up somehow like that policy gets enacted, would you just want to be expected to assume their thinking because they are now the majority? Right. It's it's an interesting question. And I, I feel like a lot of people got hung up on he wants people to just accept the fact that he's a bigot. And it's like what he's really asking for is, you know, I we believe different things. I accept that. Can you? Yeah, yeah. So he's saying, like, look, I'm not. He's, if he's no longer in a position to make policy, the danger of the way he thinks becomes a little moot. Yeah, you don't have to like the things that he feels about politically, and if you feel like the stories he's writing are pro those things, you have every right to to say I don't like this story because it represents these ideals I don't approve of. But that's not true in Ender's Game at all. No, it's not true in most of the things he wrote, quite frankly. Yeah, that has nothing to do with the movie, and and I, and I honestly a giant list of celebrities, really famous celebrities, who believe things. That are pretty fucking awful. Will Smith. Excuse me. (laughs) Just think there's a lot of them out there. And, you know, are you really going to spend all your time picking and choosing which people's art you're going to enjoy and not enjoy because they disagree with you on some philosophical difference? I mean, yes. Does that make him a bigot because he he doesn't approve of gay, gay people or gay marriage? Yes, it does. But there's bigot and then there's fucking asshole. Yeah. And he doesn't fall into the fucking asshole category for me to go like, look, I lost. I'm shut. I'm shutting up about it. What else yeah. do you want? That being said, I mean, we're not here to condone or to condemn Orson Scott Card. We're just telling you that exactly. if the reason you're not watching this movie is because of that. That's all I'm care about in this situation yeah. is to make you relax enough <laughs> to watch this fucking movie because it's pretty good. There you go. <laughs> That's really what all of our politics boil down to is will you watch this movie? Uh, all I care about. And it comes with a decent amount of bonus features, audio commentary with director Gavin Hood, audio commentary with the producers, including Roberto Orsi, of course, the guy is famous for the Star Trek movies, lots of other stuff, uh, who wrote this. Uh, a making of Ender's Game, about 49 minutes, 10, uh, 10 and a half minutes of deleted and extended scenes, a look at the motion capture techniques, and the theatrical trailer. So it's a pretty solid package. And even better, we're giving you a copy of it. Just giving away a Blu-ray copy. That's what we do. Just because. We must be broken or something. Yes, we are. But the way that you win one of our giveaways, as you may know, is we've started to do a creative writing prompt. So the first thing you're going to want to do is follow us on Twitter, at OneOfUsNet. And then for this week, what I want you to do is tell me what game do you think should be the centerpiece, the battlefield by which the the existence of humankind is fought? So in other words, what game will decide the future of mankind and why? You could see it. Maybe it's Hungry Hungry Hippos. Connect Four. Maybe it's Connect Four. I already know it's Connect Four. But I tell look, us. I looked it up. Tell us what <laughs> game you think should be uh, basically the, the turning point or the – what's the word I'm looking for here? Be the, the fulcrum? The fulcrum, yes, that determines the fate of mankind <laughs> and tell us a little bit about why and hashtag that Enders giveaway and we'll pick our favorite one and that person will win a Blu-ray. That sounds like a pretty good deal, man. I thought so. Right. I'm not asking too much. So that being said, goodbye. Is that how just, we're just ending the show, just <laughs> no, pulling the plug? No, I don't know. Say the stuff you always say. Yep. I'll follow, be here petting the cat. <laughs> like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash oneofusnet. You can follow this show at DigiNoiseCast. You can follow the website at oneofusnet. You can even follow us individually. I'm at Bry Guy Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. 
And we're always tweeting and saying silly things. And we have an Instagram account too. Yeah, we do. Uh, which is, uh, it's just Instagram.com slash one of us net. Is it? Okay. One of us net is the the title. Okay. Which we're trying now to put up more goofy stuff. I actually put one up as we were recording. I put one up of you as we were recording. Crafty son of a bitch. Right. See how that was a nice segue into what you were talking about. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that? I don't know. <laughs> His little celebration. <laughs> <laughs> but we will be back next week with a fresh crop of titles and a new giveaway. I uh, hope you'll be listening. And remember to use those Amazon links if you want to buy anything on Amazon. Get there from us, and we benefit from that. We really appreciate it. And until next week, we're going to leave you as we always do and letting you know that no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. Was he right? Was he right?